Rushd is closely related to Hidayah. It means the right way, the correct course. And the right course for him, Min Kablu from before, Wakunna Bihi Alameen. And Allah Ta'ala says about himself that indeed we were always ever knowing of the path that Sayyidina Ibrahim will take. We were always well acquainted with him. What does this mean? Sayyidina Ibrahim came to Tawheed directly through the guidance of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. There was no Nabi who came to him. Nor was there no wahi that Allah Ta'ala sent upon him, no scriptural revelation. Rather, Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala sent something called this rushd, which is a particular type of hidayah, which is what makes Sayyidina Ibrahim some hanif, which is a word we used, which come earlier in Quran, means that Sayyidina Ibrahim some naturally, intrinsically, inherently, as we're going to see shortly, rejected idolatry, rejected shirk, and came to the conclusion that one Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala exists. This is the reason why we mentioned earlier that every insan has this rushd, even if there is somebody who is living in the middle of the jungle, has never heard about Islam or religion or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but inside their heart they have the ability to recognize Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In other words, not recognize Allah ta'ala, all of his sifat, but recognize the Quranic God concept of one supreme being. They have that inside their inherent nature. And this was specifically something mentioned in Qur'an as being given to from amongst all of these Anbiya that we are talking about Sayyidina Ibrahim and then what happened when he got this Rashud so then he told his father in particular and then he told his people in general that what are these idols and statues to which you were devoted and what he meant was that is that these are lifeless objects these are inanimate objects so they, the people, responded to him that we found our fathers worshipping them, means our forefathers were doing ibadat of these idols. What does that mean? This is a proof that the calm of Sayyidina Ibrahim could not give any reason. They could not rationally respond to the rational question that why are you doing ibadah of an idol or an image or a statue? They couldn't give any reason for that. So then their fallback reason was that we are blindly following our blind forefathers. So to that then Sayyidina Ibrahim responded to them and said that indeed you and your forefathers have been in clear and manifest error. So they responded to him that okay, Sayyidina Ibrahim that have you brought a true have you brought us a truth or are you merely a joker, are you jesting, are you mocking us? So Sayyidina Ibrahim said, No, I'm not joking with you, but rather your Rabb is the Rabb of the Samawat and Ard of the heavens and the earth, and your Rabb is the one who created the heavens and the earth, and I'm but a witness of that to you. Alright. Now, first thing to comment about here is that unfortunately some people have twisted this verse about forefathers. So there are two types of forefathers. One are mushrikeen forefathers and one are mu'mineen forefathers. 
So these people are saying what? That we worship these idols because our forefathers were mushrikeen and we are following the path of mushrikeen forefathers. That is wrong in Islam. That is condemnable. But not because they are forefathers but because they are mushrikeen. However, if you have mu'mineen forefathers, you should follow those forefathers. Again, not because they are forefathers, but because they are mu'mineen. And this whole surah, Surah Al-Anbiya, is Allah SWT teaching us in Quran Al-Kareem, first and foremost teaching Sayyidina Rasulullah that you have forefathers from the Anbiya. And your deen, deen of Islam, is just following in the footsteps of those forefathers. So actually the whole surah and the mention of all of those anbiya is a dalil and a proof that we should follow the noble and pious predecessors and forefathers in the past. So that is why, for example, sometimes today you will find certain ideological movements that actually quote this ayah and use it against Muslims who follow the pious Muslim predecessors of the past. And you should also know that this is a very grave sin, that any ayah which Allah SWT has clearly, explicitly and exclusively used for mushrikeen, for any person, popular speaker, lecturer or even scholar, to pick up that ayah that is exclusively for mushrikeen and use it on mu'mineen, that is a sin. Let me give you an example. For example, if somebody comes to you and says, oh you believe in hadith and you say yes, and they say, okay, have you studied all of the entire history of hadith compilation? You say no. Have you studied every single hadith text? You say no. So well, why do you believe in hadith? You say, well, because Imam Bukhari, Rimullah, Imam Muslim, Rimullah, they were muhaddithin, they are the pious mu'mineen forefathers, and I have etimad on them. And then there's so many other scholars between 2012 and the time of Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim, who had etimad on them. So I'm following the forefathers, the early Muslim scholars, and their gradings of hadith. So if somebody was to pick up this ayah and say, Oh, you were just like what Allah Ta'ala said in Quran, that you are following forefathers, what type of answer is that? It would be wrong, misleading, mistaken, and a sin if somebody was to do that, because this ayah is referring to mushrikeen forefathers, and this person is saying, I'm following mu'mineen forefathers. So again, remember in the Quran of Kareem, Allah Ta'ala has used these words, Anbiya, Nabiin, Prophets, Siddiqeen, Sadiqeen, the true followers, truest followers of the Prophets, Shuhada, Salihin, Ulama, Uliya, and we will follow all of our forefathers in those categories because it's 100% permissible and in fact recommended and in fact part of deen to follow the Mu'mineen forefathers. But for anyone to do shirk as they're following Mushrikeen forefathers, that is what is incorrect. So just like we gave the example of Muhaddithin, you can imagine exactly the same thing is true of Fuqaha and Mujtahideen and what Ijtihad is actually going to come today shortly in the story of Sayyidina Sulaiman Sayyidina Dawud and the same thing is going to be true for the Awliya of Salihin. Any forefathers we have from the Mu'mineen Salihin, whether they're Mufassirin, Muhaddithin, Fuqaha, Awliya, Ulama, we follow them because of their Iman and their Taqwa and their Ilm and their Wilayah. Right? And this verse is not in any way suggesting that that should not be done. But this verse is saying that nobody should remain on shirk because they're following their mushrikeen forefathers. Now back to verse number 57. In verse number 57, 
say that the Ibrahim but the Lahi Ta is also a harfikasam that indeed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala La Akidanna I have a certainly and assuredly I have a plan for your idols, any that you worship, after you have turned your backs. Then Allah Ta'ala mentions fast forwards, right? And says what happened? Then indeed Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam broke and reduced those idols to pieces except the largest of them. Except for the Allah Kabir Allahum, except the largest of the idols, so that they would resort to it or they may have recourse to him. There are two ways to translate this. I'll explain this uh, in a moment. This whole incident of Sayyidina Ibrahim Salam destroying the idols, what happened here? What, let me actually read one more verse for you. So when they returned, they exclaimed that who did this to our gods, which was their idols, whoever did so was certainly a wrongdoer and an oppressor. And then they said to one another, that we've heard that a young man, he used to mention them, talk about them, means this line that Sayyidina Muhammad said, that certainly I have a plan to destroy them. So they remembered that and they said his name is Ibrahim, he is called Ibrahim alayhi salam. So then they said to one another, then bring him before the people so that they may be a witness over him, they may bear witness over him. So when Sayyidina Muhammad came, verse 62, they said to him, that did you do this to our gods, our, our deities, or Ibrahim Sayyidina Rehbsam replied to them that no, the greatest of them, the largest of them, he did it. Go ahead and ask them. Go ahead and ask the other idols if indeed they can speak. So then what happened that all of these people, they turned to one another. They turned to themselves and, and con- conferred with one another. And they said that you are the ones who are indeed the oppressors. They said this to one another. They acknowledged initially that they were wrongdoers, but then they had a change of heart. Then they had a change of heart. Then they lowered their heads and they bowed their heads, and then they reflected and then they addressed Sayyidina Ibrahim and said, You know very well that these cannot speak, right? So then Sayyidina Ibrahim said them that, Okay, then why then do you worship? Why then do you worship that which brings you no benefit nor can bring you any harm? Instead, Instead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala min dunillah. So they responded to him, Harrikuhu, that you should burn him. You should burn him. They made a pro- joint proclamation, right? And by burning him, what did they think? That you will assist your deities and your gods if indeed in kuntum fa'ileen, if you do such a thing. So then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responded, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Kul na, then we declared, Ya narukuni barda, that O oh, fire that they lit, become cool, wa salaman ala Ibrahim, and be peaceful, and be a salam, and be safe for Ibrahim alayhi salam. Still, verse 70, while they still intended and sought to plot against Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam, but but Allah ta'ala says, but no, we weighed them, the greatest losers. Alright, so what happens here? Sayyidina Ibrahim expressed his intention to them that he would destroy their idols. Now this is an episode that is coming later in Surah number 37 verses number 85 to 98. In detail, Surah Safat, Surah number 37 verses 85 to 98. I'll just read a part of that to you briefly. When Sayyidina Ibrahim said to his people and his father, what do you worship? 
do you desire to fabricate and invent deities instead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And indeed, what is your opinion about the love of the universe? So then Sayyidina Ibn glanced once at the stars and he fed ill, so they turned their backs on him and they left. What happened here was that every year there was an annual festival and celebration that these idolaters used to go out of town for that festival. When they had gone out of town for that festival, they were actually taking, Nabi Ibrahim father was taking him with them. And on the way, he was having this discussion with them, that why do you worship these idols? What, do you, what about the rub of the Alameen? And then he looked at the stars, and then he said to them, I'm not feeling well. I'm going to come back to this in a little bit. So he said to them, I'm not feeling well. So then Allah Ta'ala continues in Surah Safat, so they turned their backs on him and left. So they went on to the festival. What did he do? He hurried back to where their idols were kept, and now he's all alone. And at this moment, then Sayyidina addresses those idols, and he says to them, and this is in Quran, that do you not eat? What is the matter with you that you do not speak? And then he started striking them down with strength and force. Alright. And then... The rest of the story is here, that the people come back, they see their idols in pieces, he said, ask the greatest one, etc. Alright. Then, when we said that Sayyidina Muhammad destroyed all of them, when Allah SWT said they destroyed all of them except for the largest one, so that they may have recourse towards it, or so that may resort towards him. This means two things. Number one, means that what is apparent that they would return to it, they would ask, they would blame the big idol. This is what Sayyidina Muhammad was trying to frame the big idol as if the big idol smashed the smallest one. So he hung the axe that he used to do this around the neck of the big idol. But these people themselves also knew deep down that the idols they worship were not capable of fail of action. They could not have done this. They have no power or ability. Right? So they couldn't, and he was doing that to show them. Right? that you yourself will come and acknowledge that your idols cannot uh, cannot do anything. Second reason, second meaning of this is you take it that instead of resort towards that we have resort towards the idol, they would have resort towards him. That means that he did so so that they would abandon their deen and they would turn towards him and they would follow him in the deen of Tawheed and the deen that he had brought to them. So here then, when they decided to make this fire, so what did they do? They burnt, they first imprisoned Sayyidina Ibrahim Laysam in a room. And in Surah Safat it's mentioned they constructed a special almost room or prison for him. And then they lighted a fire. And you can call this something in English like a bonfire. And because of the, you have to put yourself, don't put your, but imagine the mushrikeen, they really believed these idols were gods. And even though they were so, they could not realize that no god could ever be smashed, they still remained firm on their shirk. So imagine the enmity a person would have for somebody who they think smashed their gods to pieces. So all of the mushrikeen viewed it as their duty to participate in the lighting of this fire. So much so that old women were collecting wood, the elderly and sick were bringing wood, and they kept Sayyidina Ibrahim imprisoned until they built this larger and larger and larger fire. Then people were spending money 
to try to acquire more things to fuel the fire, such that it became such a massive fire that nobody could even go near it because the intense heat of the fire was such that you couldn't come near it. Then a couple of their animals died because their animals were walking by the fire and the heat and of those flames was so strong that it actually killed those animals. That's how strong that fire was. Now when that fire became so strong, then the people hesitated because they didn't know how to bring about the punishment. How can they go close enough to push in Ibrahim to the fire? So they came up with this idea of the catapult. Right? And some commentators say that this is actually the invention of this device known as the catapult. And some commentators say that Iblis came in the form of a human and actually suggested to them the invention of this device. So when they made this device and they put Sayyidina Ibrahim al-Islam inside the catapult, at that moment then uh, Sayyidina Ubay ibn Niqab who was a great sahab and great scholar of Qur'an, he narrates that the angel Jibreel came to Sayyidina Ibrahim and asked him that do you require anything? And Sayyidina Ibrahim said that no, I don't require any assistance from you. And then Jibreel told him that okay, why don't you ask your Rabb for help? And then Sayyidina Ibrahim said that no, my Rabb is seeing me, he has perfect knowledge of my situation. And the fact that he knows what is happening to me, that is sufficient for me. In other words, he did complete tawakkul Allah without even making dua. So the ulama have mentioned that this is also a way. In other words, that you can make tawakkul to Allah Subhanahu in your heart. And sometimes it may happen that a person is in such a moment of despair or difficulty that they cannot find inside of themselves the language with which to express or present their condition to Allah SWT. So then what they can do is they can follow the sunnah of Sayyidina Ibrahim salam, that they can just feel in their heart and make this niyyah in their heart that Allah Ta'ala, you are all knowing, you know what my situation is. In fact, you know the difficulty and despair that I'm in with even greater detail than I know it myself, let alone in how I could articulate it. And Allah found the fact that you know what is happening to me, you are watching me, I'm doing tawakkul and I trust in you and I have complete trust and reliance upon you that you will guide me out of this. Alright. Then it continu- the, nar- the narrations continue that when Sayyidina Ibrahim was then launched in that fire, of Jahan- that fire, so then Allah subhanahu wa said to that fire, means he decreed for that fire, be cool and salam, be safe and secure. Now here, the modernists have a problem. Because for them, Qur'an al-Karim is subject and subjugated and secondary to their primary God of science and rationality. And modern day science will tell you that there, it's not possible for there to be a fire and for it not to burn. Right? Now, the problem is, is that they should read, it's very simple. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala specifically ordered the fire to burn, to be cold. So it means that that ayah in Quran is establishing, yes, the scientific fact that Allah ta'ala has created fire such that it will always burn. Remember what I told you, that there's a rationality inside Iman. That when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when you believe in Quran, then you believe that huwa ala kulli shay'in kadir, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a being who has power over every single thing, including a fire. When you believe in Quran, you believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is such a being that He said, kun fayakun, He says, be and it becomes. 
So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses that fire to be cold, the fire is becoming cool not through a scientific process, not through a sabab. So science does not need to accept that there was a scientific process by which that fire became cold. No, the Quran al-Kareem is mentioning that it happened due to the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And although, yes, this world in creation may be bound by the laws of science, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His command and decree, that is not bound by science. So when Allah ta'ala commands that fire to be cold, what does it mean? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did salab of the thermal energy in that fire. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala salab, He negated and removed and nullified the thermal energy of the fire. But the fire was still there and it was still burning. So saying, I mean, it was still in flames, but it didn't have the power to, it didn't have any heat which could engulf Sayyidina Ibrahim or harm in any way. So when he was thrown in the fire, then what happens is, another thing is that the, the, the Mushrikeen of that time, they stripped Sayyidina Ibrahim of his clothing as a further way of humiliation and denigration and to, in their mind have him burned on impact. So he was tossed in the fire by a catapult like that, right? When he lands in the fire, the fire doesn't do anything to him. But it's a huge, huge fire. And he lands in the middle of it. So then what happens is Sayyidina Jibreel came. And Sayyidina Jibreel put clothes on him. And those clothes that come from Jannah, from Allah SWT. Then Sayyidina Jibreel spread a carpet for him to sit on in that fire. And then Sayyidina Jibreel himself sat down with him on the carpet and started having a conversation. Now, the people could see through, they were all watching, right? There was a massive crowd that had gathered for this. And they saw Sayyidina Jibreel go into the fire. And then they saw through the fires that the figure is still there. And then they saw a second figure. And they saw two figures sitting. And they were stunned, right? So then what happens is that Nimrud... Right, who has even in English, because this is also a biblical story, Nimrod, which now the word means to be completely stupid, right? So he can see this, so he calls to Ibrahim in the fire. He addresses to him. Because he says, Can you get out of the. Well, are you able to leave the fire? And say to Ibrahim, Yes, certainly I can leave if I want to. So then he says that it seems that indeed your Rabb that you were calling us to is indeed all-powerful. Now, amazing that even though today in English Nimrod means nincompook or idiot, even he realized that the Rabb is all-powerful, that the Rabb can make the fire cool, but the atheist, modernist, agnostic, secularized, Muslim, modernist of today cannot understand that that this is the power of Allah subhanahu and they still insist bowing to the god of science it means they are even more foolish than Nimrod right so here so he said that your Rabb is exceptionally powerful and what I will do is I'm going to sacrifice 4,000 cows because this was his concept of animal sacrifice for your Rabb so Sayyidina Rabbi told him that look your sacrifices will never be accepted by Allah subhanahu until you accept Iman in Him, you have to leave your religion of shirk, your idolatry, and you have to accept the deen of Tawheed with which Allah Ta'ala has sent me as a prophet. And for that, Nimrod refused. And said, no, I cannot leave my religion and my kingdom and my way. Right? But, I will no longer persecute and try to oppose you. So then when he said that, then Sayyidina Ibrahim came out of the fire. Right? 
Then we'll say a few more points about this because then later on it will mention that Allah Ta'ala is going to take Sayyidina Ibrahim then away from this place and take him into Philistine. Alright. Some incidents, some commentary on this particular passage of Sayyidina Ibrahim Alright. Number one. That because Sayyidina Ibrahim was made unclothed, so in a hadith in Sahih Bukhari, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Abbas narrates that Sayyidina Rasulullah sent that all of humanity will be raised on the Day of Judgment unclothed, right? Unclothed and barefoot. And the first one who will be clothed will be Sayyidina Ibrahim as Izaz reward that he went unclothed in this world for the sake of Allah subhanahu ta'ala so on the day of judgment Allah ta'ala will immediately clothe him then second thing is this statement that Sayyidina Ibrahim made that's mentioned in Quran that he looked at the stars and he said I feel ill now there's long uh, hadith also in the Sahih Bukhari about this and those you know of our students here in Zainab Academy the women students study the hadith in detail in their fourth year of their Alama course and our men inshallah when they finally reach the eighth year I think mostly they're in the fourth year they will inshallah also study this hadith this is one of the most commented hadith I'm going to do it very briefly for you uh, because it does explain this Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam, two things you have seen which are viewed as in English we would say a white lie or a fib and then a question is raised can the Anbiya do this so first of all he said I felt ill he, didn't, he was not really sick that was a ploy that he used so that the com- their community would go ahead and he could go back and destroy the idols second when they confronted him he said oh the big idol did it right Tech- he also knows this that's not true right that technically is an untruth but he said that as a ploy to get them to think to make them realize that even the greatest of this idol is not capable of action and even you will have to acknowledge that but then because of this technicality these are two things that are technically untrue so then the ulama then raised this question right that can you uh, you know can a nabi say something that is untrue for this reason and what does that mean for us then there's a third thing that is mentioned third technical untruth that uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam said that is mentioned in and that is what's mentioned this third occasion is mentioned in the Sahih Bukhari and that is, is that once Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam was traveling with his wife Umm Sara radiallahu ta'ala anha and then they were traveling through the territory of a tyrannical king and this king was such a tyrant that what he would do is he would kidnap and order to be kidnapped any and all beautiful women and then he would capture them and he would do inappropriate things, right? So when Sayyidina Muslim knew this, that we were going through some dangerous territory and although he was hoping that they would pass safely, sure enough, right, the king's uh, soldiers and messengers discovered them so the, another interesting thing, however, was that the deen that that particular king followed was that he would not be, he would, well, he didn't, his deen said that you should not take someone, a woman, if she is the sister and traveling with her brother. So when the king's soldiers came and they confronted Sayyidina Muhammad, so he said, no, this is my sister, right? So this is the third untruth, technically speaking, untruth, 
that Sayyidina Ibrahim is in record of saying, nevertheless, the king still captured her, right? And that's another story, Alhamdulillah, obviously nothing happened. When the king captured her, uh, then he, uh, Sayyidina Ibrahim prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and then when the king tried to advance towards her and touch her, he became paralyzed, right? This is continuing the study, he became paralyzed. And when he was paralyzed, he realized that there's something special about this woman. So then he asked her, he could still speak, but his whole body was paralyzed. And he asked her that, make, please pray to me, to your God, who has paralyzed me. And then, so, and I promise, I, if I'm cured, I will never ever harass you again. So Sarah, she made dua to Allah Ta'ala. And then Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala cured him. And then... Uh, this king didn't relent, so he continues in Sahih Bukhari, tried to touch her again. And this time he was again paralyzed, and then again he pleaded with her, and then again she made dua, and then again he was cured, and now he realized, so he called his soldiers and told her that she should set her free. And then he gave her a gift, that king. And what was that gift? The king gave her one of the... He freed a slave woman who was in his service and gifted it to her. Her name is Hajra. And from this very Hajra, she is going to become the mother Umm of Sayyidina Ismail and then the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Sayyidina Rasulullah Right? Okay. But then this question of these three things. So then the ulama have then commented on this. that, And there's another day uh, that Sayyidina, which we, we discussed this with you, this incident in what's going to happen on the Day of Judgment. This is also in Sahih Bukhari that people will go to their Nabis and asked their Nabis to plead with Allah Ta'ala to begin the Hisab. So when the community of Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam goes to him, he will say, I'm embarrassed in front of Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala. I cannot plead with him to start the Hisab because of these three statements that I once made in my life. And again the Muhaddisin said, okay, even Sayyidina Ibrahim Islam is showing some remorse over that. So these three statements were not lies. And even Sayyidina Rasulullah in the Hadith has mentioned that there are certain cases in life where you may tell an untruth. And that, Nabi mentioned, is number one for sulah between husband and wife. That if there's a husband and wife who are fighting with one another, and the third party comes in, they can tell a slight untruth to try to reconcile and bring them back together. The nature of such an untruth would be as follows. So there's Abdullah and there's Fatima. And let's say they're husband and wife and they're not getting along. So then they have a friend who is Ahmad, who is the brother of Fatima. And he is the one who got them married. He got his friend married to his sister. So Ahmad will go to Fatima and Fatima will say, I'm really mad at Abdullah. And what type of person did you get married to, your brother? And I don't want to ever go back to him. So he listens to that. Then Ahmad goes to Abdullah. And Abdullah says, you know, your sister, she's causing so many problems, and you know, I have a lot of respect for you, and I married her just because she was your sister, but you trapped me and you married me, married the sister. So now what does Ahmad do? Now apparently there's no hope for him. So what does he do? He uses a ploy of an untruth. What does it mean? So Ahmad goes back to Fatima and says, Fatima, you know, I just went to Abdullah, and he's really sad, and he's really missing you, and he feels sorry, and he accepts it's his mistake, 
And Fatima says, oh, he says that. And then Fatima's heart starts to melt. Then he goes back to Abdullah and says, oh, Abdullah, oh, you know what Fatima is saying that she feels really sad and she is missing you and she's sorry and it was her mistake. So Abdullah says, oh, Fatima is saying that Abdullah's heart starts to melt. And then Abdullah and Fatima are reconciled even though technically speaking, Ahmad did not truthfully relate to one another what they said. So this is an example. Another example is to protect one's life a person may say an untruth if a person's life is in danger and saying that untruth would be able to save a person's life. And some then ulama bin Qiyas and have extended that to a person's izza and a person's property. Because life, izza and property are values that Allah Ta'ala has said that are to be preserved and one can preserve. And so if you look at all of these things, right, and also to protect a deen if the deen is under threat, right, so, for example, sometimes some Sahaba Ikram were tortured to find out the whereabouts of Sayyidina Rasulullah so when he was on Hijra, right? And another one is also in, in war, in warfare. It is also possible as a ploy and a tactic in war to say a strategic untruth to deceive and confound the enemy when that is a war that is a war for the sake of deen that is an enemy who is hostile towards deen. So then when you understand those rules that Sayyidina Rasulullah has mentioned in various hadiths, then you can easily apply all of those rules to all of these three incidents of what Sayyidina Ibrahim salam said. Alright. Now we move to verse number 71 <coughs> and continue this story. Allah subhanahu wa says that indeed we delivered or rescued Sayyidina Ibrahim salam and Sayyidina Lut salam, now mentioned of another prophet to the land that we blessed for, and this is very important for you when ajaynahu walutan ilal ardillati barakna fiha lil alameen and what is that land that Allah says that barakna fiha lil alameen that we have put barakah in that land lil alameen for all of the worlds whether it's the world of humanity the world of jinn the world of animal life that is this blessed land of Baytul Muqaddas and so then Ibrahim when he came out of the fire and Nimrud gave him sanctuary that Allah Ta'ala told him to go to Philistine alright so that's one important thing is that the Quran says that this is what we call the holy land so this is mentioned in Quran that indeed the land of Jerusalem and around it is viewed as the holy land in Quran who is Sayyidina Lut salam? Lut salam was the cousin of Sayyidina Ibrahim Sayyidina Ibrahim father's brother's son was Lut and he was also a Nabi of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they both left their homes and then migrated to this new place which was Philistine and we're going to come to Lut al-Islam in a moment in, in the next ayah let's just finish 72 and 73 so in 72 then here now after this uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had earlier mentioned uh here Allah SWT is going to mention Ibrahim Islam again وَوَهَبْنَا لَهُ إِسْحَاقِ And we bestowed and gifted Sayyidina with Ishaq Yaqub and Yaqub who is the son of Ishaq and the grandson of Sayyidina Islam And this means as a gift to Sayyidina Islam and we made each and every one of them We made each and every one of them amongst the Salihin yani amongst the righteous and pious people and we made each and every single one of them leaders. And by leaders here, it means actually a'imma, a'imma, right, which is plural of imam, 
and this means the anbiya or imam al insan so leaders of spiritual leaders of humanity yani prophets so Sayyidina Ishaq Islam is also a Nabi Sayyidina Yaqub Islam is also a Nabi and there are such Anbiya Yahduna bi Amrina that they will be guided by our command by our orders by our Amr wa awhayna ilayhim and then we will send our wahi and our revelation down to them fa'lul khairat we will inspire them as to what are the good deeds that should be performed and they include by Iqamah Salati to establish their prayer and to pay the zakat. And all of these were abideen, they were worshipful, devout servants and slaves to Allah subhanahu ta'ala. So they're anbiya, they're salihin, they're a'imma and they're abideen. All of Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi progeny, Ishaq alayhi Yaqub alayhi etc. Okay. Now from 74 is the mention of Sayyidina Lut وَلُوتًا أَتَيْنَاهُ حُكْمًا وَإِلْمًا And indeed Sayyidina Lut salam, we, Allah Ta'ala says that we bestowed upon him wisdom and knowledge. وَنَّجَيْنَاهُ مِنَ ال... Okay, now, and we rescued him مِنَ الْقَلْيَةِ From this town, literally Qariya means town, but it means his community and his people. What type of Alladhi كَانَ تَعْمَلُ الْخَبَائِثِ and they were those people who were committing and perpetrating disgusting and despicable acts. Khaba'it is plural of khabith. Or not. Innuhum kanu qawma su'if That they were indeed a community who were doing... They were degenerate, who were perverted, who were... Literally it's evil, but it means evil, degenerate. And they were fasiqeen. They were lecherous and perverted. Alright, what does this mean? Okay, this is the famous incident and we had done this actually last year in detail in Surah Araf, Surah 7 verses 80 to 84 and as well in Surah Hud, Surah 11 verses 77 to 83. But I will just repeat this a little bit because there are people who are obviously new this year. First of all, Allah Ta'ala uses the word Khabah, it's plural. So these people were actually engaged in a vast multitude of depravity and despicable acts. But the foremost of those acts was homosexuality and sodomy. Alright? Okay. And this is and that is what is being described as an evil and as a treacherous lechery and depravity. Okay. Now what does the Deen of Islam say about this? Now, if you remember those earlier surahs, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala condemns it and Allah Ta'ala punishes those people. So the Quran makes it clear that this homosexuality, sodomy is something that is evil, is lecherous, is depraved and is worthy of the punishment for Allah subhanahu wa You even have Muslims today who are so progressive and so wanting to be modernist that they say that no, even this should be okay. Now let me explain the Islamic stance on this homosexuality. Number one, again, we are not going to personally do notwithstanding that Allah Ta'ala punished that community who engaged in that act despite having a living Prophet Lut amongst them it doesn't mean we are going to go and start setting to flames or punishing or killing homosexuals just like that in society no second is that contemporary westerners try to suggest that no this is genetic it's not their fault 
their genes are such that they have been genetically made in such a way that they have attraction to the opposite gender. Interestingly, the homosexual community themselves rejects this and says, no, this is our choice. And they're very much proud of that. And they don't like to be viewed that they are somehow been genetically doomed to be this way. They say, this is our choice, this is our lifestyle, and they're actually correct. So nobody is genetically doomed for anything. Those of you who took our introductory lectures on Islamic studies, remember we explained this. That yes, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed behavioral genes in a person. Yes, a person may have a disposition. But, and some people for example, are more angry. Normally we give this example. There are some people who you can tell by their temperament. They get angry a lot. Even without provoking them, they get provoked. And there's some other people who are so soft, they never get angry. Even if you try to instigate and provoke them, they're just looking at you smiling. So yes, that is a natural disposition and behavior. Allah Ta'ala has given every human being different dispositions. Some may have a behavioral tendency more towards the sin of anger. Some may have it less. Some may have a behavioral tendency more towards the sin of lust. Some may have it less. Some may have a behavioral tendency of sin of lust towards the opposite gender. Some may have a behavioral tendency of sin of lust towards the same gender. Islam can acknowledge that. However, then Allah Ta'ala sent something on earth called deen. And deen is that training and that method and that belief and that passion through which a person can control their sinful dispositions. So just like the deen, if a person follows deen, submits themselves to deen and does in our deen what we call tazkiyah and islah and mujahadatun nafs, then they can control their anger. Just like that they can control their lust, whether it is for same or opposite gender. So even if a person would be scientifically proven to have a genetic behavior towards that feeling, deen says you still have to suppress it. Just like there's so many young men who have to suppress their desire for the opposite gender, right? They have to make fight that battle. So there may be some people who have to suppress their desire for the same gender. So we don't it can view this as an uzr as, or some type of handicap or illness that can be excused. It is yet another sin in the universe of sin. And yes, a person may be disposed towards that. They have to train themselves. So what does that mean? So when a person who has this problem comes to an Islamic scholar, the Islamic scholar is not going to kill him or set him on fire or declare him to be the greatest unbeliever. The Islamic scholar will treat him just like any other sinner who comes and will guide him and train him how to repent from that sin and how to train himself to leave that sin and how to connect himself to a greater passion which is the love for Allah SWT. It's that simple. Alright? And the same way Anyone would be treated who has uncontrollable or unlawful lust for the same opposite gender. That is the way someone will be treated who has this for the same gender. All right. This is a repeat of pretty much what we had said last year. Then Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, That indeed, then we made Sayyidina Lut enter into our mercy. What does it mean by 
saving him from this community, this depraved community. Innuhumina Salihin, and indeed Sayyidina Lut is also from amongst the Salihin. Verse 76, Ananta Allah mentions yet another Nabi, and now you are seeing right by this surah is called Surah Al Anbiya, because we're having stories of one after the other of Anbiya. Munuha, and remember Sayyidina Nuh Alayhi Alright, now this, this story of Sayyidina Nuh Alayhi we did in detail last year, Surah Al Araf, Surah 7, verses 59 to 64, and Surah Hud, Surah 11, verses 25 to 49. Right? So then we're not going to repeat that. Story over here, simply here, Allah tells us, remember Sayyidina Nuh when he called out, when he cried out before. So we answered him and we rescued him and his family from the Karbil Adim, from the tremendous distress and serious trouble that they were facing. And then we granted Sayyidina Nuh. We granted him salvation, we saved him and literally means we helped him against that community who had falsified our ayat, our signs and revelation. Means we rescued him from that people who repudiated our revelation. so in that indeed they were a community of evil and degenerate people. So what? Fa'agraknahum ajmain, and we drowned all of them except for the believers. And that is a story all of you are well aware of, and that we did in detail. Now, again, literally, not all of his family was, because one of his wife and and one of his son, because they were not believers, they were not placed on that boat for salvation. Okay. Next comes now something new. Sayyidina Dawud Alaihissalam, wa Dawud wa Sulaimana. And that means also remember Sayyidina Dawud Islam and Sayyidina Sulaiman Islam. So we're here on verse number 78. One thing what does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mention here about them? Is Yahkumani fil When the two of them adjudicated, arbitrated, rendered their decision about the crop, which crop? That crop when the livestock of the people trampled the crop and destroyed the crop of it, straying into that crop by night. Alright. And that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and indeed we Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala were a witness to their judgment. Okay, now what is this story? It's a very interesting story uh, about Sayyidina Dawud al-Islam and Sayyidina Sulaiman al-Islam. First thing we want to mention is that Sayyidina Dawud al-Islam is the father and Sayyidina Sulaiman al-Islam is the son. Second thing is that they are both Anbiya and there are a lot of very interesting details and lessons to be learned from this story and passage of Quran. What happened here? What is the incident Allah Ta'ala is referring to? That once a farmer came to, say, first came to Sayyidina Dawud al-Islam and Sayyidina these were Anbiya who were also kings and rulers of their time. So Sayyidina was also the Nabi, he was also a king. So he came to him in his capacity as a king and judge and Nabi and ruler. And he brought a person, the farmer brought a person who is, he was accusing of what? That that person's goats that that person's owned had strayed into the night, strayed in the night and had forayed and foraged into his crops and his harvest and had destroyed his crops. And so he lost all his crops. Now, this I'll tell you another interesting story, right? I normally never tell you a story in a Dora. But when I did the Mufti course, the first fatwa I got, istifta I got, question was on this issue. 
And I remember it very well because I could not understand what was written in Urdu. So the Urdu was that Falanki Mavishi. I had no idea what this word meant. And he kept using this word over and over again. It was like a one-page letter. Iski Mavishi did this, Mavishi did that. And I kept reading the letter and I, and I couldn't understand what is the question, right? And I was this is my very first question. I'm going to have to go ask for help. I'm going to be embarrassed. So I asked the student next to me, Mulana Mufti Mudassir, you Muishi guy. I said, what is Muishi? And he looked at me like, what planet are you coming from? Right? And then he explained to me that they're animals. And still I didn't understand. He's asking me about animals? Right? And then I had to reread the thing. Then there were a couple of Urdu words. And finally, I, it was exactly the same masala. And this was coming from the northern areas. And in this one fatwa, seeking, the re- researching the answer to this fatwa, Allah taught me so many things. First of all, I, first of all, I resisted. I said, you know, why should I mean? You should ask somebody locally. I don't, I don't have the other side of the story. I don't know, you know, who owned the animals. Did they really do this, etc., etc. Right? So we were trained that, look, you, you know, obviously if they've written you a letter, it was I was in Karachi, so they must not have access to ulama in their area. So what you're going to have to do is research every single possible case, write them the ruling for all the cases, and then they will see which case they fall under. You have to equip them with the knowledge. And then they will see that, okay, this is the case that happened. Is the person guilty or not? Is there any liability and compensation that is owed or not? So I said, okay, now in my mind, because up till now the fiqh I had studied, I didn't know where to find this case, right? So I had to research in so many books of fiqh. And I was amazed in what excruciating detail the ulama of deen have actually mentioned so many cases about this issue. And then we also discovered this, that this is something that has been adjudicated in earlier times. And Allah SWT has mentioned this case of Sayyidina Dawla Islamah Sayyidina Sulaiman As you're about to see, they even have different positions on this. And this is the perfect thing to understand ijtihad. But let me show you the case and the positions. But the perfect thing to understand ijtihad and why it exists and why sometimes different mujtahideen will give different positions. So I'll just do one more ayah, which is verse 79, and then we'll explain this whole case to you. Then Allah Ta'ala says, فَفَهَمْنَا Sulaiman, And then we explain the meaning of that decision to Sayyidina Sulaiman and we made him understand it. وَكُلَّنْ آتَيْنَا حُكْمَ وَإِلْمَ And both of them, both Sayyidina Sulaiman, the father, and Sayyidina Sulaiman were given, with, again, wisdom and knowledge. And then, okay. We'll stop over here. That's it. That's all Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying in the Quran about this case. So what happened when this person came to Sayyidina Dawud salam? So Sayyidina Dawud salam ruled that, okay, now as punishment, this person whose goats destroyed that farmer's crops, so now this person should give all his goats to the farmer. Because he doesn't have any crop anymore, so now instead he should be given all the goats. So then what happened was then the two of them left the court of Sayyidina Dawud salam. And then they met his son, Sayyidina Sulaiman salam. So they asked him, right, he asked them, that, oh, you know, how are you here? They mentioned the case. They said, what did my father judge? And they said that your father judged that I have to give all my goats to him now. Right? In other words, I'll be left with nothing. 
So Sayyidina Sulaiman said that, oh, if it was me and I, you would come to my court, because he was also a judge, and if I had passed judgment, it would have been a judgment that would have been beneficial to both of you. And right now the judgment is, the farmer is going to benefit because he gets all the goats, but the goat owner is going to be left with nothing. So then Khair Sayyidina Sulaiman went to his father, Sayyidina and then told him the same thing. That, oh my father, if I had judged this case, I would have judged it in a way that was to the benefit of both of them. So Sayyidina Daud asked him, that, Oh my son, what is it? That, what judgment would you have given? So Sayyidina Sulaiman said that, Okay, the goats should be given to the farmer so that he may benefit from their milk, he may trim their wool and benefit from their wool because he does not benefit from the crops. But the land and the farm should be given to the goat owner and he should now retill and then re-harvest those crops and once those crops reappear, then they should exchange it back and the farmer should return the goats to the goat owner and the goats should return the land back to the farmer. And then Sayyidina Sam said, that, yes, this is a good decision. So let's call the two of them back. And so they called the two of them back and Sayyidina Sam then Sayyidina Daud the father, then gave them a new ruling which was based on the ruling of the son, Sayyidina Sulaiman al-Sam. And then referring to these two judgments, very important, very important, I'm going to read this for you again. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what did Allah ta'ala say in Kabul? Kullan ateyna hukmaw wa ilma. That the two of them, the twain of them, both of them, Allah ta'ala says, we bestowed upon them judgment and knowledge. What does it mean that Allah Ta'ala said this after? Allah Ta'ala said that I gave Sulaiman Al-Islam the fam. It means that Allah Ta'ala is certifying the validity of both of their judgments. And that both of their judgments were done on the basis of what? Not akal. On the basis of hikmah and ilm. On the basis of hikmah and ilm. So what is the lessons that we learned from this? Number one. Lesson number one is that, and, and by the way, neither of them received the judgment on wahi. So they were acting as a judge in this, not as a nabi. So the first lesson we learn is that if there's any case that comes in front of a judge on, once, on which there is not clear and explicit wahi, then that judge can and should make a decision based on their ilm and their hikmah Ilm would mean their deep knowledge of Islamic law and hikmah would mean their legal brilliance and their understanding of that society as well. Second thing we learn, and this will be called an ijtihad, right? Second thing we learn is that you may have more than one valid ijtihad. This is very important because there's a certain group, right, which is very increasingly active. Sometimes they refer to themselves as Salafi, sometimes they refer to themselves as Hadith, and they are of the opinion that the Qur'an al-Karim and Sunnah can only lead to one opinion. And you cannot have multiple positions. And they deny the possibility of pluralism, right? And therefore they're always constantly trying to negate whether it's Hanafi mother, or Maliki mother, or Shafi mother, or Hanbali mother, right? And the Qur'an al-Karim is establishing, no, you can have multiple positions even amongst Anbiya. As long as both position the validity and authority and legitimacy and permissibility of the position is that it must have been decided on the basis of ilm and hikmah. So that's our next point. That it's not going to be just akal, akal and mahas. It's not going to be what a person rationally thinks is best. No. It has to be based on sound scriptural and legal knowledge and hikmah and on wisdom and understanding of that society. 
right? So that is, these are lessons that we learn from this very passage of Qur'an al-Karim. And another interesting thing, I mean not to spend so much detail on this topic, but in the Sunan of Abi Dawood, Sayyidina Rasulullah, there's a hadith that the same, a similar incident happened in the time of Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. And what was that? That there was a camel of a Sahaba, Sayyidina Bara'a radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who, and the camel wandered into the orchard and pasture of some other people and caused a lot of damage to the crop. But Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam ruled that the owner of the camel was not responsible for the damage. Why? Because that damage happened in the daytime. And he said, in, the Prophet ruled that in the daytime, the owner of the orchard is responsible for the hifaza of his orchard, and at the night time, the owner of the animal is responsible for the hifaza of the night. And I remember this was a huge. This is one of the many cases we had to write that person that if it happened in the day, if it happened in the night, was there a shepherd with the animal? Was there not a shepherd with the animal? Right. So this was a ruling of Sayyidina Rasulullah And like I mentioned to you in the course of that research of ours, we saw that many of the jurists have given multiple positions on these cases. Even though there is one hadith that we have about it. So what does that mean? That sometimes even when something is mentioned in hadith, but you may practically get multiple cases, sort of variants of that. So sometimes the jurists will come up with different rulings. But as long as those rulings have been derived through valid methods on the basis of ilm and hikmah, those multiple things can be valid. And any attempt to reduce that multiplicity, to reduce that plurality in Islamic legal scholarship, is actually trying to remove the wus'a, the breath that Allah Ta'ala Himself has put in deen. And the proof of that wus'a is here in this passage of Qur'an al-Karim. Alright. Then... This was what interested me, but now we move to something that's going to interest our audience much more about Sayyidina Sulaiman salam and what is that, and this is about the jinn and the subjugation of all of these things. So let's go back to page 17, ayah uh, 79. So the second part of ayah 79 was that what we do, we subjugated, we made subordinate, we made the mountains subordinate, right? Along with Sayyidina salam to do what? Yusabihna, that they will do our tasbih, that they will glorify us, what they are, and the birds will do our tasbih. So now we find that the mountain, which by, again, now this is going to baffle the scientists because according to science, a mountain is an inanimate object, and Allah Ta'ala is saying in the Quran that the mountain is doing the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we did earlier last year a passage where the stones and boulders had fear for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And the birds were also subjugated to, at, they were at the service of Sina Dawud Laysam. And all of them, Dawud Laysam, the mountains, the birds, all engaged in the tasbih, the glorification, and hamd of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Then Allah ta'ala said, وَكُنَّا فَائِلِينَ That this wasn't the doing of Sayyidina Dawud Laysam. وَكُنَّا And indeed we, we are fa'ilin. We are the doers. We are the ones who made this happen. We are the ones who make the mountains and the birds do the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Next thing about Dawud Al-Islam That we taught Sayyidina Dawud Al-Islam The skill of Making armor Yeah, the skill of making armor We have one point we wanted to make here Is that Sayyidina Dawud Al-Islam Is also one thing that's related to this Is in Hadith 
it's mentioned that Sayyidina Dawud had been given a beautiful voice. This is another thing that Mr. Ghamdi has misrepresented, that this is somehow indicating music. No. The only thing that's mentioned in the Hadith is that Sayyidina Dawud was given a beautiful voice. And for a person to use that voice, or use the beauty of their voice, to do the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is completely jayas and that does not in any way cannot be twisted to suggest that musical instrument and pop songs and things like that are jayas and here if you look at this the context of this ayah right uh, again verse number 79 what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is actually saying and you can imagine the beauty of this that Sayyidina Dawud al-Islam on the mountain and the mountain is doing tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala all of the birds in their different styles of chirping are doing the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Sayyidina Dawud with his Allah endowed beautiful voice are doing the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the concert that is allowed <laughs> in Deen of Islam. That you have about 50 species of birds, each one has its own way of doing the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the master conductor Sayyidina Dawud leading and guiding their tasbih with the beautiful voice that Allah Ta'ala gave him. Right? That is what is being referred to here. Alright. So, okay, now back to number 80. So the next thing is that uh, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala taught Sayyidina Dawud Islam what we call the art and skill of making chain mail or armor. Right? And, uh, and what is the purpose of that armor? That it will protect you and keep you min ba'sikum. Ba's means in your struggles. In, you could say in warfare as well. You could translate it as warfare. فَهَلْ أَنْتُمْ شَاكِرُونَ So indeed, will you be grateful for that? So Sayyidina Dawud Islam, what does it mean? It means clearly at that time, right, there was also, although there's no mention of that, there were also people at that time who were the enemies to these two prophets. And because these two prophets were also the kings and rulers, so they had to defend themselves. So Allah Ta'ala taught Sayyidina Dawud Islam this special way. So the advent of armor for defense is something that Allah Ta'ala taught the Anbiya and taught humanity through the Anbiya. And you've seen this as a repeated theme in the surah. Actually every master skill that human beings have, whether it's writing, whether it's sewing, whether it's making armor, whether it's engineering steel, all of that was taught first to Anbiya and then to humanity through the Anbiya. Right? Okay, then uh, the next thing is that Sayyidina, verse number 81, this is now going to move that what did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala teach Sayyidina Sulaiman alayhi So then here is for Sulaiman riha So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made iron and armor and mountains and birds, right? Physical things subjugated to Sayyidina and for Sayyidina Sulaiman alayhi wind and jinn. And jinn are also sort of ephoral, ethereal, ephemeral beings, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made a fire and thermal energy. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made them subjugated to Sayyidina Sulaiman alayhi So number one, we subjugated the swift winds for Sulaiman alayhi And by his command, it would flow in whatever direction he would tell them. And it would carry him to the land that we had blessed. What does it mean? How did Sulaiman Assam himself reach Palestine? He ordered the winds, and the winds would pick him up and take him to 
this blessed land. And then Allah Ta'ala says in Quran, وَكُنَّا بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَالِمِينَ And so above was Amil Fa'il, and here is Alim. Indeed, with each and everything, we have knowledge of things. And then وَمِنَ الشَّيَاطِينَ And then they were from the shayateen, which mean the jinn, who used to do what? They used to do diving for Sulaiman al-Islam. That they used to go deep down into the oceans and bring him all the wonderful pearls and gems and jewels and bring it to him. And then Allah subhanahu just leaves it blank. And they also used to do all types of other things under the net. Assorted and sundry and miscellaneous other tasks. Whatever Sayyidina Sulaiman used to tell them. And Allah says, and we were keeping watch over them. That's what it means. Allah subhanahu said, we were keeping watch over these jinn. When they would do that work for Sayyidina Sulaiman so this is what people are very interested in, that Sulaiman Islam controlled jinn, and he controlled the wind, and then that's the, that's the kind of thing we want to hear about, and tell us more about jinn capturing, and jinn controlling, and you know, how about you know, teaching us some of this type of stuff. Hmm? Pakistanis love it, they, they, they lust their dream, to be able to control and capture a jinn. Hmm? <laughs> So this is something that Allah Ta'ala gave Sayyidina Sulaiman Some of those jinnat were mu'minin in him. He was believers, part of his ummah. And yes, some of them, and that's why Allah Ta'ala has used the word shayateen as opposed to jinn, because some of them and some commentators say the majority of them, and hence the word shayateen, were actually evil jinn. Who Sulaiman yes, in a sense you could say Allah Ta'ala enabled them to sort of capture them. And they were then doing manual labor for him. As a punishment for their evil. What is this? What's, this? What's the raz behind this? So actually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala made Sulaiman the Nabi. But Allah ta'ala also promised him dominion and kingdom over everything. And one of those things were the jinnat. Now obviously those jinn who are his mu'mineen, they're obviously going to follow him as a Nabi. So the jinn who are mu'mineen are following him as a Nabi. But the dominion, kingdom, kingship part over everything also had to be manifested over the jinn the kingship part would be manifested over those jinn who were not believing in him and that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enabled them to subjugate the shayateen because he was their ruler he was their king just like a king today the people who are you know rebels in the state he may capture them and put them in jail and then they do manual labor for him in the jail that's the sense in which Sayyidina Sulaiman had captured the jinn so this was part of Allah Ta'ala manifesting that he was to be made king over each and every single thing. Alright? Elsewhere Allah Ta'ala mentions in Surah Sabah, Surah 34, which is coming, verse 13, that as Sayyidina Sulaiman Sulaiman pleased, these jinn, they would construct for him huge buildings, Dishes the size of dams, large pots, etc. I thought when this may be one thing that explains some of these wonders of the world. You know, there's some places in this world, on earth, where people call them the wonders of the world. And some of them people, what are this inexplicable? Stonehenge, how did these huge stones come here? And how are they arranged in that pattern? Maybe this is Sayyidina Sulaiman 
because the whole earth was his kingdom. So maybe he had some of these jinn do these intricate carvings into the mountains or do these things that today people look at and wonder. Right? This is a wonder of the world. How could man have made such a thing? Perhaps, perhaps, maybe this is something that Sayyidina Sulaiman al-Islam made some of the gender. Just to keep you happy, yes, Sayyidina Rasulullah also was able to capture jinn in the Sahihis in Bukhari and Muslim. There's an incident that a jinn once tried to disrupt the Salah of Sayyidina Rasulullah. It shows you these shayateen jinn, they even don't leave the Prophet. So this jinn, it's not Iblis himself, it was one of his minions, one of his followers, tried to disrupt the Salah of Sayyidina So Allah subhanahu gave the ability in the Prophet to capture that jinn. Then the next morning, this was at night, and the next morning Sayyidina told the Sahaba that he wanted to take this jinn and tie it to one of the pillars in Masjid Nabui, so that they could all see it. But he told the Sahaba, but I decided not to do so. <laughs> I chose not to do so. Why? Because he said, I remembered the dua of my fellow Nabi, Sayyidina Sulaiman al-Salam, in which he had prayed that, O oh my Rabb, forgive me and grant me such a kingdom that you will never grant to anyone after me. And because his kingdom was the kingdom of, over the jinn, if I tie this jinn up, then I will also have kingdom over jinn, and I don't want to, you know, uh, take away his exclusive thing. So Sayyidina Rasulullah then therefore released him and did not tie him up. So this is a lesson for all of those people who think and want to become Amil that Sunnah of Sayyidina Rasulullah is even though he was able to, he chose not to capture and retain and subjugate jinn. So if our Nabi is like that, then why in the world would anyone in his Ummah want to try to capture and subjugate the jinn? Khair. So maybe we made some of you unhappy, right? <laughs> All right. Here, there's either, there's other incidents of jinn with Sayyidina Susan, but that's for another time. Verse number eighty-three. Now is the story of Sayyidina Ayub alayhi salam. First thing I will mention to you that this this is coming more in detail later in Surah Sal. Long discussion about this illness and tremendous illness, and you can call it debilitating illness that Allah Ta'ala afflicts Sayyidina Ayyub with. There is no real mention anywhere in Qur'an al-Kareem or in even the hadith of Sayyidina Rasulullah what exactly this illness is, right? And again, there are lots of narrations from the Israeliyat that suggest that there's this and that. But in this particular case, the Mufassirun have not accepted those narrations because the things they suggest uh, they feel it was be against the shan of Nabuwa of Sayyidina Ayyub alayhi salam. But to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Sayyidina Ayyub and remember Sayyidina Ayyub alayhi salam as well. Ilnada Rabbahu, that when he made dua and called out and supplicated to his Rabb, and what did he say? Inni masaniya dhurru, that indeed in adversity and difficulty has afflicted me and has come over me. وَأَنْتَ أَرْحَمُ الرَّاهِمِينَ Now here is that statement in dua. وَأَنْتَ أَرْحَمُ الرَّاهِمِينَ And Allah Ta'ala, you, you are the most merciful of the merciful ones. So what does Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala say then? Allah Ta'ala likes this way. Remember I mentioned to you, this is something you should always see. How did the Anbiya make dua to Allah Ta'ala? And we learn from that. So Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala loved this way of calling that in Sayyid Muslim is calling Anta Ahmad Rahimin. So what did Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala say? Fastajabna lahu. 
So we answered and hearkened to his call. We answered his dua. فَكَشَفْنَا مَا بِهِ مِنْ ذُرٍ And we removed, we lifted up. We removed that adversity and illness that was affecting and afflicting him. وَأَتَيْنَاهُ أَهْلَهُ وَمِثْلُهُمْ مَأَهُمْ رَحْمَةً مِنْ إِنْدِنَا وَذِكْرَ لِلْعَابِدِينَ And then we bestowed upon him back his ahl. وَمِثْلُهُمْ مَأَهُمْ And then the likeness of his ahl, رَحْمَةً مِنْ إِنْدِنَا is a mercy from, our, from us. وَذِكْرَ لِلْعَابِدِينَ And as a dhikr, as a reminder and a remembrance for the abideen, a reminder for the devoted Slaves and worshippers of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what we do know then here is that due to this intense illness that he had, even his family had left him. Right? Even his family had left him. But here Allah ta'ala says that we return back his family. So some me, some Mufassirun have taken this, that he got a family and then a second family. In terms of a second spouse, right? Some say that it refers to the children, that his wife and children returned to him, and then again he had as many more children. So then he had double the children that he originally had. Alright? But here we're going to do this in more detail later when it comes in detail in Quran Surah Sa'ad. Next verse number 85. And also remember Sayyidina Ismail Sayyidina Idris alayhi salam. And Sayyidina Zulkifal alayhi salam. Who was Sayyidina? Uh, each and every one of them, we entered them and admitted them into our mercy. And each and every one of them were from amongst the Salihin, the righteous, pious people. Who is Sayyidina Zulkifal? Because Sayyidina Ismail alayhi salam, Sayyidina Ismail alayhi we discussed in Surah Maryam. There is no clear mention of who Sayyidina Zulkifal alayhi salam is. Alright? Uh, again, there are many narrations from the Israeliyat as to who he is. Suffice it to say, we will just leave it at that, that he was also a Nabi of Allah, another Prophet of Allah SWT. Verse number 87, And the noon literally means, and the one of the fish, this is referring to the one of the whale, this is referring to Sayyidina Yunus salam. This is referring to Sayyidina Yunus salam. So, and remember and recall him as well. And when he left in a state, he went off in a state of anger, that he was angry with his community, his community was angry with him. Alright. Now this is very tricky ayat of Quran. Literal translation means, and Sayyidina Yunus Samad, he thought that we had no power over him. I'm going to have to explain this. Right? And he thought that we had no power over him. Okay. Allah ilaha illa. Oh, sorry, but no power over him. Then, fanada fil But then, when he was in the darkness, means the darkness in the belly of the whale, then what did he do? He cried out, Allah ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min zalimin. Very famous ayah. Right? That there is no being of worship other than you, Allah SWT. Indeed, me, I am from the transgressors, the wrongdoers, the unjust ones. So then what? Again, another sentence Allah Ta'ala likes. These anbiya unko Allah Ta'ala ko pukarna aata hai, manwana aata hai. Hmm? 
they say these one sentences and Allah's fount of love and mercy comes. So he said this one sentence and then what you have Lahu, same word that was used earlier. And Allah Ta'ala accepted and relented towards him and answered his dua when the Jainahu min al Ghammi and we rescued him and gave him salvation from that sadness and affliction. Yani we took him out of the belly of the whale. And just like that we will do najat of all mu'mineen. Anyone who says La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu maladhalameen with heartfelt meaning and feeling Allah Ta'ala will accept their tawbah from whatever sin they attest to and acknowledge by this sentence. Alright. Now, question here, right, is the story of Sayyidina Yunus Salaam. And we did this earlier Obviously, entire surah, surah Yunus alayhi salam. We did this last year, right? And, but I just want to mention again, and, and most likely repeat a little bit of what we, uh, you know, and, and, and there's more details coming later, surah 68, verses 48 to 50, but I want to mention uh, something here. On this particular sentence, How can a prophet think that Allah Ta'ala has no power over them? So that's not what it means here. You have sometimes you have to understand something in what we call idiomatic transition. So the story is all if you know Sayyidina Yunus kept calling his community, kept calling his community, kept calling his community. And they weren't accepting, they weren't accepting, they weren't accepting. So then he left them. Right? He left them. When he left them, he didn't view the act of leaving them to be a sin. That's why Sayyidina did not sin. This is one of the biggest mistakes that Malana Madudi made. And his tafsir, he writes that Yunus Ham committed a sin. And then he takes this whole tangent where he says that this is a wrong philosophy that Anbiya can't sin. Don't you say Yunus Islam can't sin. Actually, this sentence is what he didn't understand. Sayyidina Yunus when he left his community, he did not think he was sinning or disobeying against Allah subhanahu wa He thought that, okay, I've done... what. What else can I do? I've delivered the message, they refused it. So because he didn't think he sinned, he did not expect the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to put him in that situation of the belly of the bell. He didn't expect that Allah ta'ala was going to, and this is also, you see the word Allah ta'ala uses his power, not his anger, his wrath. Allah ta'ala is going to demonstrate his power over Yunus not that Sayyidina denies that power, but he didn't expect a demonstration of this power was going to come on him because he didn't think he did anything wrong. That's what Allah that's what it means. So, when Allah Ta'ala demonstrated the power for that, if you remember, right, as he goes on this boat and then the ship is not sailing and the sailors must have, I don't know, Allah Ta'ala inspired them or they had some old wives' tale that there must be a slave on this boat who has disobeyed their master. <laughs> a slave on this boat whose master is displeased with them and then they said it's him so they threw him and then he entered the belly of the whale now when he was in the belly of the whale because of that sentence now he realized that my leaving the preaching to my community is something that displeased Allah SWT and now he said that not because he was a delivered sinner he didn't know that that was a sin but now that he is in the belly of the whale Allah Taala has manifested his kudrat on him now he then says, I'm min al So that's another thing that what, you know, that particular person and others who have followed him say that, no, he's saying, in kuntu min al He's attesting to the fact that he's a sinner. He didn't sin though initially, 
right? But he's attesting the fact that I have displeased Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I have displeased, and I accept that. I thought that I was done, I could leave the community, right? And this was the nature of the Anbiya. It's very similar to the way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Quran, Abba Sabah Tawalla, even sometimes, you know, mm, reprimands Nabi Kareem sallallahu or makes manifest his power and knowledge that Nabi maybe made an on-the-spot decision that was not the most pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Alright? It's nothing different from that. So Sayyidina Yunus Islam is not in any way a sinner. He is still masoom. And all of the Anbiya alayhi salam ajma'in are masoom. Another important thing here in golden gift for us is the sentence. Right? This beautiful sentence. La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu min azalameen. And Sayyidina Saad radiallahu ta'ala was narrated hadith from Sayyidina Rasulullah sallallahu which he said that the dua of a mu'min will be in commentary of this verse that the dua of a mu'min will be accepted if he includes this dua in his own dua. And that's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said it And similarly we will also give najah to mu'mineen if they say this sentence. But it has to be meant from the heart, right? It has to be real, heartfelt expression of Toba and acknowledgement. Okay, verse 89, yet another Nabi, but we had done him just recently in Surah Maryam. And also remember Sayyidina Zakariyah, and also remember Sayyidina Zakariyah, Idna the Rabbahu, when he called upon his Rabb, Rabbi la tadarni fardo wa anta khairu wa Again, a special one line dua. One line that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala again, فَاسْتَجَبْنَا lahu, And Allah Ta'ala relented and answered his prayer. So this is another special dua that we should make. Right? Again, what is that dua? رَبِّ لَا تَذَرْنِي فَرْدًا وَأَنْتَ خَيْرُ الْوَارِثِينَ That oh Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do not leave me alone without an inheritor. And indeed, أَنْتَ خَيْرُ الْوَارِثِينَ That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you are the best of Successors are the best of heirs. Alright. So Allah Ta'ala says we answer Yahya and we did this before, right? That we gifted him with Yahya we allowed uh, and we made his wife fertile and be able to bear children. And why? So that each and every one of them, Yusariuna Fil Khirat, they would hasten to perform the acts of virtue and the acts of piety and the acts of worship. Okay? And what would they do? So these are three steps that are mentioned. Number one, and this is about all of the Anbiya here now. Innuhum kanu. So all of these Anbiya that have been mentioned in this whole surah up till now. All of the Anbiya that were mentioned. Sayyidina Lut Islam, Yaqub Islam, Ismail Islam, Zul Kifil Islam, Sayyidina Islam, Dawud Islam, Sulaiman Islam. Innuhum, all of these Anbiya kanu yusat. Number one, they would hasten to perform good deeds. And number two, And they would turn in dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They would turn to dua Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Call upon Him with anticipation and fear. Really, ragba is actually love. With love and awe. With love and reverence. This rahaba Maybe fear, but it's like Targheeb and Targheeb, right? As some ulama have written, compiled collections, Targheeb with Targheeb, in love and awe, in affection and reverence, 
And this last part means, and then they were humbled in fear in front of us. So three sifat of the Anbiya that are mentioned for us to learn from. Right? First, Allah Ta'ala is showing Sayyidina Rasulullah how to be a Nabi. How the Anbiya are, right? By the previous stories of the Anbiya and showing us as well. So we should hasten towards good deeds. And obviously this month, coming month of Ramadan is going to be perfect for that. Second, that we should call, make dua, become people of dua. And that we call Allah Subhanahu lovingly and reverentially. And number three, we should always be humbled in front of Allah Subhanahu and have fear in front of Allah Subhanahu And then last in, uh, 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 in this surah, Allah Subhanahu mentions Sayyidatana Mayyam Radiyullah Anha, whose story we also did, Wallati Ahsanat Farjaha. And also remember that woman who um, preserved and nobly guarded her chastity. Alright? Now this is a special honor to her. That this is called Surah Al-Anbiya. The mention has been going on of prophets. But this woman was at such a level of purity that these Anbiya who were masum, who were free from sin because her haya was so pure, she is being mentioned in the sequence. In this sequence. Her nisbat with the Anbiya is her haya and her ismat. Her purity from any sin and flaw. Allah So remember her as well. And this is where sponsor says, <coughs> And then we blew into her, infused into her from our ruh. And وَجَأَلْنَاهَا وَبَنَّاهَا آيَةً لِلْآلَمِينَ And we made her and her son a sign for Alameen for all of the worlds, all of the universe, all of the creatures, all of the peoples, all of the communities. What is the sign? The sign that she could have a son without uh, the process and he is the sign that he can be born without a father. Right? So this was a sign, a miracle, put it that way, a miracle from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala this is Sayyidatana Maryam Tanha and her story we had done earlier in Surah Maryam. 92 now, Allah subhanahu wa has... This is the end of the mention of all of these Anbiya. And from 92 to 112, the rest of the Surah, Allah is going to mention some general teachings of the... Inna hadhi ummatakum ummatum wahida that indeed this is your community your community is one community what is Allah Ta'ala saying the continuity of adhyan the continuity of deens all of this is one deen Islam is not something new all of humanity has been given one deen that is the deen that is the same deen of all of the prophets and all of the books and all of the scriptures yes there have been differences in laws and rules and regulations in the teachings of the different prophets but in terms of aqidah in terms of beliefs in terms of things like that all of it is just one continuity one continuity and what is the most important thing of that continuity وَأَنَا رَبُّكُمْ فَعْبُدُونَ and then Allah Ta'ala says and I and I am your all of your Rabb all of humanity's Rabb all of those communities Rabb فَعْبُدُونَ and you should do ibadah of me this is the ultimate deen. That Allah Ta'ala is our Rabb and we are His Abd. Every Nabi came with this. The Abd-Rabb relationship. 
right? And that is again why many times we teach you that the secular ethic is precisely to destroy this tasalsal, this continuous deen. Because secularism teaches you you don't need that rub and you don't need to be as abd. Just be good, it's okay if you don't pray. You don't need to be abd. You don't need him to be a rub. You just strive in the world, you don't need to make dua to him for anything. So it is trying to pierce this abd, rub reality that all of the anbiya have brought. Now, Allah SWT is mentioning this climax of this chain is Khatam al Nabiyyin wa Mursaleen Sayyidina Rasulullah Wasallam. What does it mean? That there's something that has happened something that happens that would cause each and every another Nabi yet another Nabi yet another Nabi to come. And what was that? Was that the people who, who were the communities of these Anbiya right they had divisions how would how would he translate this? Okay, separate. They've separated their ways, divided their ways from one another. All of them have to. Uh, that's kullu uh, Each and every one of them is going to have to return to us. Now, what does that mean? That all of these different communities ended up dividing their ways, right? So the Jews said were Jews, the Christians said were Christians. These communities did not realize that the salsal, the continuity, right? And so deen of Islam, one of its features is to restore that continuity. That no, all of humanity has been consistently, continually invited by Allah subhanahu wa to one reality, ana rabbukum, that I, Allah ta'ala says that I am your Rabb. Fa'budun, and you have to do ibadah of me. That's the asal, not ibadah of Isa islam not Isa islam is your Rabb, not this, not that, not the other. Right? So the deen of Islam is coming to bring that back. So again the teaching is that the deen of all of these deens are were originally one. A second aspect of this is that all of the earlier communities they split up into sects, denominations, etc. And you see that in the Muslims as well. Right? That you had a certain schism and you had different sects in Aqidah. So this may be an opportunity for me to clarify that. The Arabic word for sect is firqa. Firqa means a difference in theological belief, right? Sometimes people ask a question that why can't I, why can't I just say I'm Muslim? So you actually can't say that. I will show you why. So the first division that took place historically and the most big split is between what we call Sunni and Shia, right? And there's no need for any person to have any shame or hesitation in openly, academically talking about these things. And if we talk about these things, it doesn't mean we're trying to encourage or condone any type of violent act, but we're looking at a fact that there's a theological split. So one example of that split, to make you understand why you, a person cannot be, quote-unquote, just Muslim, is that the Shia believe that Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, anhu, Sayyidina Umar and Ummu Mu'mineen Sayyidatana Aisha Anha are all unbelievers are kafir and that they should be cursed and it is ibadah to curse them and I had students at the university who would come and tell me this and, and they weren't even doing it they were students who were from secular families in Karachi but were living in the hostels in Lahore and they happened to be here during 10th of Muharram and their local friends took them to such gatherings and they came back 
even though technically they are from that community, they came back stunned and said that there's cursing going on, we're being told to go into sajda and curse these people. And the Sunnis are those people who believe that Sayyidina Abu Bakr Siddiq is a mu'min, Sayyidina Umar is a mu'min, and Umar Mu'minashad is a mu'min. So you cannot say, no, I just want to be Muslim. The only way you could do that is if you want to say this, that I don't know whether Sayyidina Bakr is a mu'min or a kafir. I'm just a Muslim. I don't take either sides. I don't know Umar Mu'minashad, she's a believer or unbeliever, I don't take sides. That's the only way you could do it. I'm going to suggest to you, there are some things in life you have to take aside. <laughs> this is a major issue. This is the wife of the Prophet ﷺ, right? This is the first Khalifa of the Prophet ﷺ. You will inevitably end up taking aside. But, can we get along? Yes, we can peacefully coexist as fellow citizens of Pakistan. No problem whatsoever. But, when it comes to religion and theology, can we say, I'm just a Muslim, that's the only way you can do that is if you deny both positions. And you can't really do that. Because, why? Because if you say that I don't know whether Abu Bakr is a believer or unbeliever, that means that you don't think he's a believer. Right? As they say in English, as a famous English saying, that anything other than a yes is a no. Anything other than doing tasdeeq of the iman of Sayyidina Abu Bakr means you're doing nafi of it. Alright? So that's one division. Then you have divisions within these groups, right? So then the Shias have the Zaydis, the Ibadis, the Al-Khanis, the Buris, and the Jafaris, otherwise known as Ifna Ashtaris, depending on the number of Imams they believe in. Sunnis have had different groups amongst them, right? So, if there is a difference in theology in the Ummah, then the Ummah is also guilty of this. But Allah Ta'ala is condemning in the Quran that why did you, the earlier communities, once they received deen and they received a nabi and a book, they split into theological sects. It, if it takes place and it has taken place and when it took place, the ummah, whoever did that, caused that split and was part of that slip, split and perpetuated that split, is guilty on this verse. Second thing, however, there are some differences in this ummah which are not firka which are not differences in theology. Those are those differences which we say that we agree to disagree. And those sometimes are, for example, matters of scriptural interpretation or legal interpretation. For example, you may find one book of Tafsir gives few akwal, another mufassir had a different interpretation of that verse. So, this within the Sunnis, this is known as Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah means that we follow the Sunnah, we see the Prophet ﷺ, Jama'ah, we believe in the Jama'ah of Sahaba. We believe all of the Sahaba are believers. Second, we take our understanding of Tafsir from the Jama'ah of the Mufassirun, from the collective of all the scholars of Quranic commentary. Although, yes, some of them may have certain interpretations, but we agree to this, we accept those differences. We view all of those differences as all within one firqa, it's all one group, called Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Similarly, we accept the jama'ah of muhaddithin. So, for example, Imam Bukhari has a different way of grading a sahih. Imam Muslim has a different definition of sahih. We accept all of that and we can agree to disagree, right? Similarly, we accept the jama'ah of the fuqahan mujtahideen. Everyone, Abu Hanifa, Shafi, Malik, Ahmed Bahanbal, others whose legal methodologies have died out, other, those who have remained, we accept all of them inside the jama'ah, even though they have agreed to disagree. 
right? On certain matters of legal interpretation, just like we saw in the example of Sayyidina Dawud Sayyidina Sallallahu there can be multiplicity. There's multiplicity, that's fine. You can have multiplicity. Remember that unity in Islam does not require uniformity. You can have unity with diversity as long as those are legitimate differences and the people can agree to disagree. You want to pray like this, you want to pray like this, we can agree to disagree about that and everybody's still fine. We're all under one boat. Similarly, you can say the jama'ah means the jama'ah of the Siddiqeen, Sadiqeen, Awliyaullah. That there may be multiple ways to make du'a to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, multiple ways to make zikr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. As long as it is within the sharia, it is permissible. So this is what it means to be Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. And this used to be the special thing about Sunniism in the early, early in 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, etc. century up to the 19th and 20th century. However, in the past century, we have had another group among Sunnis who has come up which has said, no, there should not be plurality. There should not be multiplicity. More than one cannot be valid. There is only one interpretation and whatever interpretation they follow, they will say that is hadith and sunnah. And in every other interpretation, they will say that is against hadith. Sometimes they call themselves al hadith, sometimes they call themselves salafi, right? And so what this has done, this has removed the wusa that Allah subhanahu has placed. Just like we showed you here. Dawud position is correct, Sulaiman position is correct, according to Allah subhanahu so the Qur'an establishes you can have multiple correct positions and you have to learn to agree to disagree. Alright? So that was a brief, so I don't, because again, this is a verse that is sometimes misused and misapplied. Right? Uh, so Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi, this, this verse doesn't apply to that because that's not a theological difference. Okay? Alright. Verse number 94. Now Allah Taala is going to mention, like I was telling you, very general things. So general thing about the general thing. فَمَنْ يَعْمَلْ مِنَ الصَّالِحَاتِ وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنِ فَلَا كُفْرَانَ لِسَعْيِهِ That whomsoever does any good deed, act of virtue, act of piety, act of worship, وَهُوَ مُؤْمِنِ And they are a believer in such a state that they are in a state of iman. فَلَا كُفْرَانَ There will be no rejection of their of their striving and their effort and Allah Ta'ala says indeed and we are writing and recording every single thing for them means in an unerasable way everybody will get the reward every believer will get the reward of the good deed that they do then verse 95 that is an established fact that That it is impermissible, that it is forbidden for a community ahlakna, that ahlaknaha, that we have destroyed, anahum la yirji'un, that there is no way they will ever return. So this is Allah subhanahu wa mentioning the unbelievers, that when this punishment comes, that community can never come back. Ad never came back. The mood never came back. There is no revival. Once Allah's punishment comes on a qawm, they are wiped from history. They are wiped from existence. There will be no second coming of them. Right? So, now verse 96, something we did in detail in Surah Kahf last year. Until the time when Futihat, I'll just say Yajuj and Majuj are let out, are opened up. Right? And then what will they do? 
Then they will release and they will, when they release, they will swarm down every single slope in hell. The notion is that they will release in a burst and they will swarm. They will be released in swarms. Okay? Now, who are Jaj and Majud? We had a long discussion on this last year that you can listen to on the internet if you weren't here. One answer, Allah knows best. Second answer, it's a community that is currently imprisoned, right? Behind a wall. So these two things are for sure. Who they are and how they will be released, uh, you'll have to go online and listen to that. Alright? Because that was a long thing and I can't, I can't repeat it here because the real story it comes in Surah Kaf. This is just a cursory reference to that. Alright? Okay. And then, so verse number 97. Okay, and then the true promise will have drawn near so the eyes of those who those who had scoffed means had disbelieved in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the ayat of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala what will they say? So there's a statement that they're going to say they're going to say woe to us Ya lana, woe to us means what a terrible state we find ourselves in Kad kunna fil ghafla Kad kunna fi and we were in a state of heedlessness we were forgetful. But rather we were actually unjust and we were wrongdoers. So first they will say we were that we were unaware of this, we were heedless of this. Then they will say no, we're even worse than that. We were actually wrongdoers, we were deniers, we were oppressors, we were unjust. Verse 98 and you and whatsoever you worship instead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all of that is hasabu jahannam will be the fuel for the fire of jahannam. And then Allah ta'ala says to the disbelievers, indeed you will surely enter that fire of jahannam as well. Right? This is for the, specifically for the mushrikeen. Were those deities and false gods that you had set up and that you were worshipping, they would not have they would not have come to this, but all of them will be there forever. All of them will also enter into Jahannam forever. And then what will they be doing in that Jahannam where their where their lot will be to scream and shriek in Jahannam and they will be unable to hear. So they will be shrieking and screaming in Jahannam, but themselves be Alayasma'un, they themselves will not be able to hear. Right? You can recall that famous, I remember they called the Shriek, right? can't remember that fellow's name anymore. Munk, alright? This silent person who is deaf, who is screaming and shrieking uncontrollably, alright? What is it? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying the Mushrikeen thought that their gods would intercede for them on the Day of Judgment. They used to tell them, okay, even if there is a Day of Judgment, even if we will be resurrected, no problem, the gods we believe in are going to help us on that day. They will save us from your God, so we're not going to leave our gods. This is one of the problems in polytheistic religion. They very much view God versus God. So one of their problems and why they didn't accept Nabi Akhazan, they said, okay, fine, even if you are a messenger, even if you have a God, our gods will protect us from your God on the Day of Judgment. That's how they thought. So this is this passage is basically Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responding to that misconception and false belief 
of the disbelievers. Alright. Then verse 101, as for those to whom the best from us has happened already, they will be kept away from there. They won't even hear its hissing as they will abide forever in what their souls desired. The unbearable terror will not distress them and grieve them in any way. And then the angels will meet them and the angels will say, هَذَا يَوْمُكُمْ That this is your day. أَلَّذِي كُنْتُمْ adun. This is the day that you were promised. So what does this mean? This is talking about those believers. Right? Who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying is that they will be protected from the fright and from the terror of Jahannam. They will be protected from it entirely. Right? And then they will receive the bounties that were promised to them. This will be their day. And this will be the day when they will be rewarded for their iman, rewarded for their amal. And so this is a hope that we have that may Allah ta'ala make each and every one of us amongst this. Right? That we won't we'll be kept away from the fire of Jahannam. We won't hear its hissing. Right? And then we will abide forever in what our souls desire. And that we will have a life of eternal bliss. And whatever it is that we want, Allah Ta'ala ma tashtihi anfusuhum. That whatever they want, Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala will give it to them. Alright? That's elsewhere in Quran. Verse 104. Yoma. And remember that day. And now Allah Ta'ala is going to now mention features of the Day of Judgment. This is the day when Al-Sabhanta says, We will fold up and roll up the sky like a scroll. And just like we created the earth initially, we initiated the first creation, we will restore it to that. Right? And again, if you take this notion of a big bang, that creation emerged from nothing. So this verse is very much saying that it will be reduced to nothing. Just imagine as if you reverse right, the process of creation, and everything gets folded up and sucked into a dot, and then the dot is negated. And that same nothingness from which something was created, all of something and everything is wrapped up and folded and collapsed back into that nothing. Back into that nothing. That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. So the entire physical realms and universe will be folded up back into nothing. And the and this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can do because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the you know the master creator and he is inna kunna fa'ileen that indeed we are the we are the ultimate doers it means Allah Ta'ala is the ultimate author of creation he can delete his creation he can delete what he created verse 105 then Allah said that indeed without doubt we have inscribed we have written and inscribed and recorded in the zabur which are the psalms which is the book of Sayyidina Salam. after the remembrance that Allah subhanahu wa said that what? That my servants that indeed the earth will be inherited by Allah Ta'ala saying my ibad, my worshipful devout servants and slaves who are salihin, who are righteous and pious. And indeed there is an in the balaghan and indeed in this there is a balagh, there is a message. For who? to a community who is going to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alright so this folding up everything into nothing and then Allah ta'ala is saying is that the land so it doesn't mean that the ibadah salihin have inherited this earth right now in this life right it doesn't mean that they are going to prevail over the earth for all of eternity what it means is that the ibad is salihin, when they are all ibad and when they are all salihin, then the earth belongs to them potentially. 
And in those times in human history when they did do it, they actually got an actuality. Whether that is the time of Sayyidina Sulaiman Sayyidina Daud whether that is in the time of Sahabi Ram Tabin and the glorious period and golden age of Islamic civilization, this is what Allah SWT means. That as long as the people who have received now deen and scripture and nabi, as long as they're ibad and they're salihin as the entire collective, then the earth belongs to them. Everything will fall into place. And that has happened. Like and most recently, again, the, the example of Sayyidina Dawud, most recently in this surah, the example of Sayyidina Dawud and Sayyidina Sulaiman So then Allah SWT said that this was sufficient uh, this was a sufficient balag, sufficient message for the worshippers. That look, even if you, if you all as a collective worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and are righteous and pious, then even this very earth will be yours, let alone the jannah that has been promised to be yours. And next comes a very famous ayah of Quran, وَمَا أَرْسَلْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةً لِلْآلَمِينَ Now in Surah Anbiya, after mentioning so much about so many Anbiya, then refuting the unbelievers, and establishing the continuity of the prophets and of all the deens. Then mentioning that the ibad and salihin will have this very world and they will have everything in the best of the akhirah and that Jahannam won't be able to touch them. Then the climax of all of that and the greatest thing about the history of the prophets is the greatest of those prophets. So here now Allah subhanahu wa tells Sayyidina Rasulullah and by declaring it in Quran Allah proclaims to the whole universe and all of creation and all of humanity that indeed we have not sent you Nabi Karim Sallallahu except as a mercy to the universe except as a mercy to all the worlds this is a whole series of lectures could not even begin to exhaust one drop of the meaning of this verse right but just imagine that Allah Subhanahu is that being who told us in Surah Fatah that he is a Rabbul Alameen and that being who is a rub of the Alameen is telling all of the Alameen in Quran that Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu has been sent as a rahmah for the Alameen as a mercy to all of the worlds. It means that Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu I'll just talk about this verse in light of the surah, right? It means that all of these Anbiya came to particular ummas, to particular communities, to particular places. Whereas Sayyidina Rasulullah is Nabiul Alameen. He is Nabiul Alameen. Like Allah Ta'ala is Rabbul Alameen, Sayyidina Rasulullah is Nabiul Alameen. He is not Nabi for just Bani Israel or Nabi for one particular qawm or another particular qawm. His special thing is that he is for all of the Alameen. He is the Prophet of the Jinn, the Prophet of Humanity, the Prophet of the Angels. He is the Prophet of all of the inanimate life, the Prophet of all of the animate life. He is the prophet of the universe and the world. That's who Sayyidina Rasulullah is. And his coming and his nabuwa is a rahmah, is a mercy. The ultimate manifestation of Allah subhanahu mercy is the irsal, is the sending of Sayyidina Rasulullah. The greatest act of mercy is that Allah Ta'ala sent Nabiya Kareem. And so that means that we being from Alhamdulillah Ummat Mustafa we are the direct recipients of that great act of mercy that our Nabi is Rahmatullah Alameen now then imagine how grateful and how obedient we should be to Allah SWT, that we have been blessed with his greatest mercy right that we are from the Ummah 
of that Nabi whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned as Rahmatul Alameen. Another meaning of Rahmatul Alameen is that Nabi Akram Sallallahu is that Nabi who his Sunnah, listen to this very carefully, Nabi is that Nabi whose Sunnah and Seerah can enable every single thing in the Alameen to get the Rahmah from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He has laid down the perfect path to get the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He is Rahmatul Alameen. He will be the sabab for the Alameen to get the Rahmah of Arham al-Rahmeen. If we follow his sunnah and we live a life according to his seerah. So why? Given that we are in his ummah, we are from Mu'mineen, we are people who say and profess La ilaha illallah subhanahu wa ta'ala Muhammad Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam we profess that how could we not follow his sunnah and seerah right it's like a person who has food but chooses to go hungry that's what it means not to follow the sunnah can you imagine anybody like that who has food but doesn't eat it and keeps not eating it and then you say they have the most nutritious food and they have the most delicious food and they still don't eat it and they don't eat it. And then the reason they give you is that because society likes to see me hungry. I'm living in an age and a day where society thinks I should be hungry. How can we leave the sunnah of that Prophet whom Allah Ta'ala has mentioned as Rahmatul lil alameen? How could we leave that for some culture, society, fashion, friend, family? How could we do that? means we are voluntarily leaving that mercy of Allah subhanahu wa It means we are saying, Allah ta'ala, I want to take myself out of that alameen. You said, Nabi Akram, Rahmatul al-alameen. I take myself out of that alameen that he has a rahmah for. I don't need a sunnah. Allahu Akbar Kamina. Could anybody think like that? Hmm? Could anybody act like that? Hmm? So don't underestimate Nabi Akram Sassam and his sunnah. Right? And Allah Ta'ala has already said that He is Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim. So don't think that no, it's okay, I can get the mercy without the Sunnah. No, there is a Rahmah that exists in the form and the Surat and the Zahir as well as in the Hakikat and the Batin of Nubuat of Nabiya Kareem Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that is a Rahmah for the Alameen. So that is another very important, right? Meaning and way to understand this verse. Allah Akbar, like I said, this is, you know, we could just do this verse for the rest of the Dora <laughs> and it wouldn't be exhausted, alright? But we have to continue uh, and move on. So, verse number uh, 108. So, say to them, my beloved Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Say to them what? That innama yuha ilayya annama ilahukum ilahu wahid. That indeed it has been revealed to me and revealed to me that indeed your ilah is just one ilah. Your God is that one God, yani Allah. Fahal antum muslimun. And indeed are you ready to submit? Here muslimun, we will translate that way. That indeed are you ready to submit to that one Allah subhanahu wa have you submitted yourself completely and absolutely to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So then 109. So if they turn away, فَإِن تَوَلَّوْا 
if they turn away, if they don't submit completely, فَقُلْ So say to them, my beloved Messenger Wasallam, That indeed I have exhorted you and called you and announced to you Clearly and manifestly and explicitly وَإِنْ أَدْرِي أَكَرِيبٌ أَمْ بَعِيدٌ مَا And I don't, this is in Iznafia, I don't know that whether مَا adun what has been promised, in other words, the end of time, the sa'a, the hour, what has been promised, whether it is near or whether it is far. It means, look, you don't have much time to choose, you don't have much time to act, you have to submit to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. إِنَّهُ يَعْلَمُ الْجَهْرَ مِنَ الْقَوْلِ وَيَعْلَمُ مَا تَكْتُمُونَ And indeed Allah subhanahu without any doubt, Allah subhanahu certainly, assuredly knows that which you profess out loud and that which you harbor secretly and you hide and feel inwardly, which you conceal in yourself. But in adri, and again Allah is saying, and again the Bible is being told to say that I don't know. <coughs> Whether this is, uh, I don't know, it may be a trial for you or it may be mata'un ilaheen, it may be just a temporary enjoyment, delight, just for a heen ilaheen to an appointed, stipulated, limited time. And then say to them, Nabi Kareem, that, oh my Rabb, judge them by truth, by haqq. وَرَبُّنَا الرَّحْمَانُ الْمُسْتَعَانُ And then our Rabb is Ar-Rahman Al-Musta'an Our Rabb is the All-Merciful Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He is Al-Musta'an The one to whom we turn He is the resort that we turn to And we turn to for assistance Against what? Alamata Sifun Against what it is that the people assert And claim and attribute About Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Or about Deen so here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructed Sayyidina Rasulullah to first and foremost as Rahmatullah Alameen give the message of Tawheed and then give the message of Taslim that there is one Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we have to submit absolutely and completely to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and then about all these warnings and punishments of day of judgment that have proceeded in this verse and have come throughout the Quran then the Bhagavan tells the people and is telling us also that we, no one knows Right, whether it is near or far. And this also establishes Quran that Sayyidina Rasulullah did not know every single thing. He did not have absolute ilm of ghayb. He did not know completely the unseen. Only and only Allah Ta'ala can know every single thing. Right? And one of those unseen matters is that when, how near or how far the day of judgment is. But another interesting, then second thing is that Allah SWT knows everything that you profess and everything that you hide. What does it mean? Right? This can work for you and against you. Right? If you harbor good feelings, Allah knows that even though you weren't able to profess them. But similarly, if you harbor bad intentions, bad feelings, bad thoughts, right? Angry thoughts, lustful thoughts, envious thoughts, etc. Allah Subhanahu knows that even though you don't profess it. So it means then our exam is going to be both on our zahir and our batin. Both on our qawl and our feeling and our niyyah. So it means that the of Islam has come that we have to purify both. We have to purify both our outward appearance, action, statements, behavior, and also our inner feelings, thoughts, intentions. Because Allah Ta'ala knows both of them. Allah Ta'ala knows both of them. 
Then the next thing the neighbor says, then I don't know whether this world is a test trial for you or it's just an enjoyment. What does that mean? That Nabi Karim Sallallahu is saying that the delay, not delay, but the fact that there's still time left until the sa'a means that it is a test for those who wish to pass that test. And for those who fail that test, then it means that you're just going to sink deeper and deeper and deeper in this life into the enjoyment and pleasures in this world. But those pleasures will be just to a limited, specified, preordained time. And then Sayyidina Rasulullah made this dua, and according to some commentators, the Sabah bin Nuzul or Shah bin Nuzul, as they say here, is that this is the dua Nabi Khan made at the Battle of Badr. That all the Spahantala judge, yani in terms of uh, in terms of who's going to win this battle in Badr, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala judge it on the basis of haq. But generally this is a dua of Nabiya Kareem Sassman, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will judge in haq. Now, obviously Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to judge in haq, right? As we showed you, the earlier Anbiya's duas, right? And how in one sentence they capture Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so here look at Sayyidina Rasulullah Nabi al-Anbiya, Imam al-Anbiya, Sayyid al-Anbiya His dua Rabbih, Rabbihkum bil-Haq That O our Rabb, Allah Ta'ala decide on the basis of Haq Wa Rabbuna rahman <laughs> Yes Allah Ta'ala will decide on the basis of Haq But our Rabb is our rahman <laughs> So that decision will be on Haq But it will be dominated by mercy And leniency And forgiveness And compassion and benevolence because Rabbun Ar-Rahman our Rabb is Ar-Rahman Allahu Akbar and He's also Al-Musta'an and He's also the one we turn to our resort so this is another way right that we can make dua to Allah Subhanahu Wa Rabbun Ar-Rahman Al-Musta'an Alama Tasifun and yes now here as far as the other verses Allah Ta'ala followed it by verbally saying Right in Quran, in the sense you can say it verbally by proclaiming in Quran that we accept it. Here, Amalan Allah Ta'ala accepted the dua in Badr and made the Sahaba Kram triumph and succeed, whereas all odds, all logic and rationality were against them. So it shows that Allah Ta'ala actually did a more intense to show all the believers for history, future history, that when you make this type of dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that even if all odds and logic and rationality are against you, whether it may be one's community, one's society, one's friends, one's family, when we make this dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah ta'ala will enable us to overcome all of those odds. Alright, so we'll stop over here. Inshallah, because we finished Surah Al-Nabiya, we're going to take a very short break. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم يا أيها الناس اتقوا ربكم إن زلزلة الساعة شيء عظيم. This is surah number 22, surah al-Hajj, and here Allah subhanahu wa taala begins the surah on a very very strong note. First, يا أيها الناس makes it clear that Qur'an al-Kareem is a message for all of humanity. Here, and I mentioned this before, I'm sure, difference between Ya Ayyuhal Insan and Ya Ayyuhal Nas. So in English, to give you that feel, Ya Ayyuhal Insan would be O Humanity. 
And Ya Yohannas means, O oh people, O oh each and every single one of you human beings. O oh human beings. It's a more direct. Ya Ayuhannas, insan is addressing humanity as a collective. Ya Ayuhannas is addressing each and every single one person. So, O oh you people, O oh human beings, Ittakurambakum. Each and every single one of you humans, you should have taqwa for your Rabb, you should fear your Rabb, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inna zalzalat sa'ati. Indeed, the earthquake of the hour yani, that will signal the end of time, the day of judgment, shay'un adheem, it is a tremendous thing indeed. It will be a tremendous matter and a tremendous affair. You can also call zalzalatun, if not literally earthquake, but the shock, the shock of the sa'a, the tremor of it. Yes, at the hour, everything will be folded and collapsed. So it can be viewed as that reverse Big Bang type of earthquake. It can also be zalzalat of the juki of the hour, the shock and tremor of that last moment is indeed going to is a shayun adim is an incredible thing. What here and what does it mean to have taqwa? Taqwa here means to follow. This teaching of deen, follow the kitab, follow Quran, follow Nabiya Kareem sallallahu alayhi sallam. Then about this day, this day will be so adheem, the day will be so tremendous, that what would you say, يَوْمَ تَرَوْنَهَا تَذْهَلُ كُلُّ مُرْذِئَةٍ أَمَّا أَرْذَعَتْ That you will see that every single wet nursing mother, right, and this can be mother or wet nursing, wet nurse, she will even forget that baby who she suckled, that baby who she nursed, right? Then, every pregnant woman, every pregnant female, will drop its fetus. In other words, there is a woman who is alive at that last moment of time, who is pregnant. She will have a miscarriage and she will expel that unborn, not fully formed baby out of fear. The fear will be such that this will be a physical response. And then second, you will see the people, uh, you will see the people, sukara, as if they are in a state of intoxication. However, they will not actually be drunk on any substance, but they will be wandering in a stupor, right, as if they are intoxicated. However, the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is indeed going to be is severe. So these signs that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions, very intense sign, right? And again, this is something that the women and mothers will understand most intimately, the first two signs. But even men know about the love that a mother has and the attachment a woman has to the baby she nurses and the attachment that a woman has to a baby who is yet in her womb and it means that this shock of the sa'a is going to be something that ruptures all rationality, all composure they will be complete, lose all of their composure right? and for those who are destined for it the punishment of Allah is indeed severe yet still women and nasi 
Yet still there are some people who dispute and argue about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala without any basis in knowledge. And what do they do instead? And they follow every single defiant shaitan. And it is about shaitan of whom it is written that he will misguide anyone. He will misguide anyone. That he will misguide anyone who puts him in charge, who befriends him, and he will misguide them to the torment of the blaze, to a blazing torment, a blazing punishment. Alright. Here in this word Zilzila, right here I mentioned those two things to you. In Hadith in Bukhari, Sayyidina Rasulullah said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala instructs Sayyidina Adam al-Islam on the Day of Judgment to separate the people who are who have earned Jahannam and then those from those who are, have earned Allah Ta'ala's mercy to send them into Jannah. Then when Sayyidina Adam asked Allah subhanahu wa Allah subhanahu wa say that from every 1,000 people, 999 will be destined for Jannah. So that, does that mean in math, 0.1% the Zadith and the Sahih Bukhari 0.1% of humanity, of people, of Nas will go to Jannah at least directly. Right? Because that 99.9% will go to Jahannam. Some of them to live there forever and some of them to be purified there and then to be eventually removed and placed into Jannah. But this conversation between Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Sayyidina Adam will be heard by everyone. So then Nisadi says that upon hearing this, when all of Anas hear this, that 999 out of 1000 are going to go to Jannah and we're about to be split. So they, every, this, at that moment, this is what will happen. This is the tafsir of this ayah, that then every nursing woman will forget what she nursed. Women, pregnant women were expelled, their fetus, the youth, will, in, in addition to the messenger, that the youth will turn white in fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then, they will just be walking around in a stupor, in a drunken stupor, even though they're not actually intoxicated on any particular substance. Then, In another hadith of Bukhari, Sayyidina Rasulullah said that by the being in whose, in whose hand and in whose power and control lies my life, I am hopeful that you will comprise half of the people of Jannah. You need the Ummah of the Prophet will be half the people of Jannah, and all of the other Ummahs would then be the other half. So that is a hadith that gives some hope to the Ummah of Sayyidina Rasulullah. Verse number five. Yaihanna said, O humanity, that if you are in doubt regarding the resurrection, then remember that certainly Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we created you from dust, then from a drop of fluid, yani semen, then from a clot, then a clot of congealed blood, yani the fertilized fetus, then from a lump of flesh, which is the fetus that develops in the womb, which was shaped or unshaped, formed and unformed. Right, which is referring to the developmental stages of the fetus in order what? in order to 
all of these things you were created from this so that we may show you, so that we may inform you. And we keep in the womb those we wish up to a designated term, and then we bring you out as babies or infants, and then enable you to reach your maturity. But some of you will pass away, and some of you will be kept here, and it means here means on the life on earth, until the age of senility, until senior age, such that they know nothing of what they knew before, such that they will know nothing of what the knowledge of what they once possessed. And then you will see the earth will become barren and lifeless. But then Allah Ta'ala says we will shower rain and water upon it. And then the earth will stir and flourish once again. And then it will produce every kind of beautiful species. That is because Allah Ta'ala is haq. Lalaka bi anna huwa haq. This is because Allah Ta'ala Himself is the reality and the truth. Because Allah Ta'ala gives life to the dead. And because Allah Ta'ala ala kulli shay'in qadir. That He is powerful and has command over each and every single thing. And at the end of, and all of this is because the end of time is imminent. That indeed the end of time is imminent. It is coming. There can be no doubt about it. And because Allah Ta'ala will surely raise those who are in the graves. So this is a reply uh, about this nation of resurrection that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that look when you were initially created in this world you were created from just a small drop and then Allah ta'ala mentions some of these stages of development right and this notion this stage of maturity is viewed by some ulama to last until the age of 30 and other ulama to last until the age of 40 which means the prime of a person's youth Similar stages of fetal development are mentioned in Surah Ghafir. Alright. Then, when Allah SWT said this formed or unformed or shaped and unshaped, some of that is mentioning, to, is referring to children who are born physically handicapped, right? So Allah SWT is mentioning that, that this is also the power and decree of Allah SWT that some of the fetus and embryo in the womb will develop into a fully formed human being. And some will develop into, let's say, an unformed or deformed human being. Right? And then when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions that you will see the earth barren and then Allah ta'ala will send the rain to it, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is giving another example how He can revive and resurrect it. Don't you see that He allows the earth to go barren and then He revives that earth by sending rain upon it, causing that earth to become fertile, the ground to become fertile, and then again, vegetation and crops and vegetable and fruit grow upon it. So just like that, just like Allah's Father's ability to revive and make fertile land that has gone lifeless, dead and barren, Allah Father has the ability to revive a life or a human corpse that has gone lifeless and dead and barren. That was the reason for mentioning this uh, passage after these two things, one after the other. Alright, number eight, ayah number eight, and there are those, yet still some people, still argue about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, again the same thing, ilmin without any basis in knowledge, wala hudan, and without any direction and guidance, and wala kitabin munir, and without any enlightening scripture, right? And this is again, you know, this is a very good description about the atheists today, that they argue about the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, not on the basis of any ilm, just on their own personal preference, their own fancy. They're not arguing on the basis of any hidayah, nor are they arguing on the basis of any scripture. So this type of person who is making such an argument, they're turning away and aside from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
in contempt in order to mislead others from the path of Allah subhanahu ta'ala. So Allah ta'ala says about such a person that they will suffer, they will be disgraced in this world, and we will have them taste the torment of the burning blaze of hellfire on the day of resurrection. And then Allah Ta'ala, it will be declared to them on that day that this, you know, this punishment of the fire Jannam is for, is due to what you brought from your own earnings, from your own hand, literally it's your own hand, from your own doing. And Allah Ta'ala will never be unjust towards His true servants and slaves. So this punishment will come to those who rejected His servanthood and His worship. And then from amongst them there are also some other people who worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah literally means on the edge, which means on the verge of disbelief. Which means they're very fickle and very weak in their belief, right? They're walking, what is it called? They're walking on the edge. How is that? In what sense? What does that mean? So let's all describe this. فَإِنْ أَصَابُهُ خَيْرٌ That if something <coughs> good happens to them, befalls them, then they are content and satisfied. However, if any trial, any difficulty afflicts them, then literally they, literally in Kalaba Allah they turn on their face, they're knocked over on their faces, means that they turn away from Allah They're no longer happy and content. So what happens to such a person? Khasirat dunya. They will lose in the dunya. Wal akhirah. And they also lose the akhirah. Dhalaka huwal khusranul mubeen. This is a clear and manifest obvious state of loss that they're in. Yad'u min dunillahi ma la yudhurruhu. And then he who worships and makes dua to that which can neither... <coughs> harm them and that which can neither bring them benefit instead of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala anybody who does that who is the law of this is outlandish error this is far from the path this is going far astray then they pray verse number 13 they pray to one whose harm is closer than their benefit surely a wretched protector labisal mawla wa labisal ashir that it is terrible that false, non-existent God and idol that they pray to is a wretched protector and a miserable, wretched ally and protector and a miserable and terrible companion. Alright, so here Allah SWT is saying that though this is referring, this was originally referring to the Munafikun, those who had accepted Islam due to some worldly gain, for some worldly purpose, for some worldly intention. So in Sahih Bukhari, Sayyidina Abdullah bin Basra narrates that after some people arrived in Madhima Nawra, then soon after they came, their wives bore children, and their horses also gave birth to more stallions. And then when they saw that, they thought that this was the barakah of Madhima Nawra, the barakah of Deen of Islam. So they thought that the deen was good. However, later on, when a few years passed and their wives didn't bear any more children, then they would say, no, the deen is not good. So what does it mean? They're deciding their attitude about deen, about Allah subhanahu wa based on their success in this world. This is what these ayahs are for. And we find that problem today, right? That when things are going well, we're happy, we think Allah is happy with us, we're happy with Him. 
because everything is going smoothly in life and then when things take a twist and a turn for the worse when we have some test and trial and difficulty we stop being happy with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we're not happy praying because we thought, no the reason, so that means, what does that mean? that means the reason I was praying was that so things would go smoothly I wasn't praying to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so I was praying so that things would go smoothly as and when they were going smoothly I kept praying and when they stopped going smoothly then I don't feel like praying so this, this passage is about that type of iman that type of person and obviously that's being condemned that no person has to do worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through thick and thin Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to worship a person has to worship Allah in good times and bad it's like I'm reading the marriage vows, right? So they have to remain loyal and loving to Allah Taala in all situations. Let me just give you one nukta on that. There are two words, sabr and sugar. These are the two attributes that will to become amongst the sabirin and shakirin. Normally people think that when things are going well, I should do sugar and be grateful to Allah Taala. And when things are going bad, I should do sabr. Yes, that is true. However, the opposite is also true and sometimes even more deep. What does that mean? When things are going well, have sabr. And when things are going bad, have shukr. What does that mean? Here, sabr means a different thing. It doesn't mean patience. Sabr means endurance, perseverance. When things are going well, have sabr, have himma, istikamat, remain steadfast on your deen. Don't slack and become lazy on your deen because things are going well. And when things are going bad, have sugar. What does that mean? Look at all the other, so fine, you are being afflicted with one particular test and difficulty, but look at all the other aspects and arenas of your life which are going well, do sugar to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So to have both sabr and sugar in both situations, that is the prescription that will save a person from falling under this description that a person who just worships Allah when they're receiving khair and then they turn away from Allah when they're not receiving khair in the dunya means that their basis of love and worship is not the world or worldly progress but their worship and love for Allah should be purely and only and only for the sake of Allah alone. That Allah spawned also then in verses 12, 13, 14, 12 and 13 we're talking about those people who were also doing shirk and they worship something that can neither harm nor benefit them this is far deviation and they worship that which the harm is closer to them than the benefit what does this mean? this could be a false idol this could also be dunya right? I mean, let's make it more relevant to us this could be dunya that we worship the dunya right? and it may appear that the dunya has more immediate benefit but actually the harm in it is greater than the benefit and the dunya is a miserable companion to have and a wretched protector to take verse 14 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will certainly admit those who believe and who, who do amal asadaq good works to the jannat to the gardens under which streams will flow for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does Inna yurid. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does whatever he wills and intends Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will do as he pleases that person man that person who thinks that 
uh, Allah subhanahu ta'ala will not assist Allah, that Allah subhanahu ta'ala will not assist Nabiya Kareem sallallahu in the dunya and in the akhirah so such a person who thinks like that they should extend a rope to the sky and they should try to cut the process of wahi that is coming down on the Prophet and see if their scheming and their cunning can remove their source of anger and irritation. And then Allah says in verse 16 that وَكَذَلَكَ أَنزَلْنَاهُ آيَاتِ بَيِّنَاتِ And thus to be revealed and send down upon humanity are clear and manifest signs and clear and manifest verses of Qur'an. And then again وَأَنَّ اللَّهَ يَهْدِي مَنْ يُرِيدِ That indeed Allah SWT will surely and definitely grant hidayah and guide whomsoever He wills and whom it pleases Him to guide. Alright. So Allah SWT is saying that you know that I about extending rope that's a hypothetical that's a rhetorical device to explain to the kuffar that their enmity towards the deen will never cause the deen to fade will never cause the deen to fail will never cause the deen to disappear so what it means the anger and rage that they feel it's futile there's nothing no matter how angry they get about deen they will never be able to stop deen stop the revelation coming on to Sayyidina Rasulullah and again this remains true till this day no matter how against the deen any group of people may be any segment of society will be they're anchored towards the deen and their efforts on the basis of that anger to try to stamp out the deen they will never be able to succeed in that they may apparently be able to shift the work of deen from one sense to another they will never be able to stamp out the deen so their anger is ultimately futile then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala So this is those who, uh, as far as those who have Iman, yani the Muslimin, as far as the Jews, the Sabians, the Christians, those who are uh, Majus, uh, and those who are Alladina Ashaku, and the Majus, you can just call the Majins in English, and the uh, Mushrikeen, the polytheist idol worshippers. Indeed, Allah subhanahu wa will decide between them on the day of judgment. And indeed, Allah subhanahu is a witness to each and everything that each and every one of them are doing. Do you not see that... Yes, do you not see that Allah subhanahu wa such... That every single thing that is in the Samawat and Arad, every single thing that happens in the Sajda prostrates to Allah subhanahu wa including, including, the sun and the moon, and the stars, and the mountains, and the trees, and and this is the animals that walk the face of this earth, land mammals, you can say, and many human beings, not all of insan, but many, many people as well. And there are also many of those human beings upon whom Allah subhanahu they will send, they're justly worthy and deserving of punishment as well. And no one and every any such mm, that person whom Allah Ta'ala disgraces there is no one 
There is no one who can ever be as mukrim, no one who can ever honor them. Inna Allah yafudu ma yashal. Indeed, Allah subhanahu does each and every single thing as and how He pleases. All right. This question here again, people will question this. Uh, okay, first Allah subhanahu is saying that everything will be decided on the day of judgment. This does not mean that okay, just wait and see. It doesn't mean that, right? Because that's like not writing anything in the exam book and okay, we'll wait and see who gets. But if you didn't write anything, you're definitely going to get a zero. Yes, you'll wait and see who got the A as the B, but you earned yourself an F. So by this, Allah is not suggesting inaction. What Allah subhanahu is saying is, look, the Qur'an is the Furqan. It has decided, it is declared, it is the clear criteria. But for those who are still stubborn in their disbelief, then they should know that this matter will be decided for them on the Day of Judgment in a clear and manifest way. Another census says that given that it will be decided, and there will be a decision, and there will be a triumph, or there will be a loss, then a person has to make a selection. So in, you can, in this sense, this verse could be used to refute agnosticism. That you cannot just comfortably say, or think that this is a comfortable position, well, I don't know. Maybe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala maybe He doesn't. Right? That won't help you on that day of judgment. Because a decision will be made. You're either going to pass or fail. Right? So better that you make the decision to be the true believer of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In verse 18, again the Mahras will raise the question, that how does the sun do sajda? How does the moon do sajda? So yes, the human being does sajda by prostrating their forehead on the ground. The sun and moon, their sajda means they submit to the command of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one way I mentioned that to you, can you understand the orbit of the moon? It is submitting to the laws of gravity that Allah has dictated that it has to follow. The sun is not bursting, right? It's growing at a speed in terms of the stars. Our stars, you know, has not become a red dwarf. I've even forgotten all those things now. But there are certain stages in the development of a star, red, red dwarf, nova, supernova, then it explodes. So our, st- our star, the sun is actually a star, right? And that is developing at a fixed rate according to the commandment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It cannot go faster, it cannot go slower. The stars also are obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because wherever they are, they are following some orbit or some pattern. The mountains obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they retain their structural integrity and they don't collapse. The trees are obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in their own way. Right? And the beasts and the animals, everything is obedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is what, if you remember those of you who attend the Islamic Studies courses, we explain that the only, no creation has the ability to disobey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Only and only human beings do. Interestingly here, Allah ta'ala says, Kathiru minan nas, that a lot of people do that sajda, but at the same time, وَكَثِيرٌ حَقَّ عَلَيْهِ الْأَذَابِ to the bad, there is a large majority of people who are also who have also made themselves, you know, earned the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it suggests when you have kathir on both sides an overlap. Like when you have two sets, the circles and there's the overlap. So there's gonna be one overlapping people that even though they do worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they've also made themselves worthy of azab. Right? And so we don't want to fall in that category either, that we do do ibadah, that we do do sajda but still we do certain such things and certain such sins that we become worthy or earning or deserving that maybe the best word to translate that deserving of the 
punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Verse number 19. Hadani Khasmani. These two opponents and these two adversaries dispute about their Rabb. As for those who disbelieve about their Rabb, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about them, the garments of fire of Jahannam have been cut out for them and boiling water will be poured over their heads. It will melt whatever is in their bellies and their innards and as well it will melt their skins and their outer form. And they will have restraints and chains of iron imposed upon them. Or you can also say they will have hammers of iron inflicted on them. Whenever they seek to get out of there, <coughs> whenever they will attempt to escape and seek to get out from that punishment, from their anguish, from their grief, we will send them back into and return them into that. And what will they be told? Waduku adab al harik. Again, taste the punishment, the torture of the blazing or the burning fire of Jahannam. All right. This is a very strong uh, mention of the punishments of Jahannam. Right? Uh, first of all, the two opponents are simply speaking, the, the two parties to dispute are the believer and the disbeliever. Right? And the one who is a disbeliever, what is the level of punishment Allah Ta'ala is trying to explain in Quran in very vivid terms? Not just that they will be placed in the fire, they will be placed in the fire. The fire will be surrounding them. But then they will be made to wear clothing of fire. So that it's right there with them. Then boiling water will be poured over their head. It will melt whatever is in their bellies. So the Mufassirun said that it will obviously melt every single thing on the way to melting what's in the bellies. So imagine such a intensely hot, it doesn't mean boiling like earth level boiling. Maybe I shouldn't even use the word boiling, scalding. Incredibly scalding hot liquid will be poured over them such that it melts their skull, melts their brain, melts their esophagus, melts their entire innards. And that dress of fire and that water being poured will also trickle over them and melt all of their skin. Allahu Akbar Kamira. This is an intense punishment. And then when they try to escape, so they will be in somehow, some way, trying to crawl themselves out, they will simply be cast back in. And then they will be punished verbally, because they will be verbally told, Muduku Adab al Harik, that you should once again taste that punishment of burning. And one reason the word verb taste is used is when you taste something that is pleasurable, right? So it enters through one point. But then the taste is a sensation, the pleasure which your whole body feels, right? It's something that your whole body feels pleasure, you get a, your whole body feels happy. It's not just the tongue. So this tasting, this verb being used of tasting for Jahannam means that the whole being of that person is going to be punished by the fire of Jahannam. May Allah save each and every one of us from every single drop of that fire of Jahannam. Then verse number 23, as is Allah's practice to alternate from one side to the other, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُدْخِلُ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَأَمِنُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَعْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will surely admit and make to enter those who had iman, who believed and did good works, amal salih, salihat to gardens under which streams flow beneath, where what will happen to them? They will be adorned with bracelets of gold and pearls, and their clothes in Jannah will be made of silk. Why? Because wahudu illa tayyib, and they will be guided to tayyib to the most noble and beautiful and pure of speech and wuhudu uh, and they will be guided and they will be guided to that path Hamid that is the path of the praiseworthy ones the ones who are the most worthy of praise and yes in many places elsewhere in Quran Allah SWT has mentioned the benefits of the blessings of Jannah here one thing is that for men obviously in this world gold and silk is not allowed Nabi Akram has mentioned uh, in a hadith that gold and silk are halal for the women of my ummah but haram for the men of the ummah in this world but in Jannah the men will also get uh, that gold and that silk alright and in fact uh, in another Hadith Nabi Akram Sallallahu that if you desire the gold and silk of Jannah, then you should not wear them in this world. So Nabi Akram gave an emotional under, a way to understand that if you want the gold and silk in Jannah, then you should not wear gold and silk in this world. They will be guided to that best of speech. What does it mean? That they will, some of the Mufassirun have said that in Jannah they will recite the best speech and the best sentence, the best expression on the tongue is La ilaha illallah. So the zikr of La ilaha illallah is something that they will continue in uh, in Jannah. That what is said is that they will be guided to the path of the Sirat al-Hamid. So Sirat al-Hamid means that that path that is the most praiseworthy, means worthy of praise, that means that the path that leads towards Jannah and the Akhirah. The best of paths. Right? They will be guided towards that best of path. In another hadith, Nabi Akram has mentioned that a crown will be placed on the heads of the people in Jannah. So some of us here have felt that the bracelets will be placed on the women and the crowns will be placed on the men. Allahu alam, it's possible that both could be placed on both as well. But then Allah shifts back, Inna kafaru, and those people who disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala وَيُسُدُّونَ أَنْ سَبِيلِ Plus, they stop people from the path of Allah subhanahu They prevent people or they try their best to prevent people from becoming closer to Allah subhanahu Obstruct others from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And also stop people from Masjid al-Haram. So what does this mean? That there were certain kuffar at that time who prevented the Sahaba Ikram from going to Baytullah. That this is that uh, stopping from Masjid al-Haram from, the, from visiting the Kaaba which we made for all humanity equally. Right? That everybody should be able to go to the Haram who are Mu'mineen, both those who are intending, uh, the different ways of transit, the one transit is those who are sedentary and those who are nomad, and another way to transit is those who 
uh, intend to do it injustice and those who intend to do it justice. So we shall let them, those who intend to do an injustice, we will let them taste a painful punishment. So what does this, and another, yeah, so another, instead of translating as maybe nomad and center, we can call it resident and visitor, right? Those who have residence in Makkah Makarama and those who are visiting from outside Makkah Makarama. So there was an incident in the sixth year of Hijrah that Sayyidina Rasulullah and the Sahaba were on their way for Umrah, but then the unbelievers prevented them from going to Makkah Makarama. So that is the immediate incident being mentioned over here, right? But generally speaking, anybody who stops a person from going to deen, from the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and if you stop somebody from going to Masjid al-Haram, these days we even have people who don't want their children or spouses to go for Umrah, or they will mock their friend and say, Aap kya dabar janik kizurit hai, to itni Umrah kar chuke Right? Then why do you want to go again? You've already gone so many times. Right? Now that's not literally in this verse because they're not forcibly stopping. Right? But they're suggesting that their path should be stopped. So it's not a forcible stopping but they're suggesting to that person that you yourself should stop going on this path. Right? And so we wouldn't want to do anything even remotely near this because this is something that is extremely displeasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and earns His punishment. Whomsoever wants to go whenever they want to go from the Mu'mineen to Haramain Sharifan, whether that is for Hajj, that is for Umrah, nobody should stop them in a mocking sense or in a negative sense. Yes, if for the sake of intizam, those who are in charge, who are the Khadim of Haramain Sharifan, if they set a limit on the number of people who can perform Hajj, that is in their right to do so. That is in their right to limit the number so that they can best manage those numbers for Hajj. Alright? But for them to, for anyone to restrict it for some other reason, which is not acceptable in Deen, that would also lead to the anger of Allah Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Allah, we ask that you enable each and every one of us to follow the model and example of all of the Anbiya and Mursaleen that you have mentioned in Quran Al-Kareem. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, let us have the sincerity and the sabr of Sayyidina Ayyub Salam. Let us turn to you in remorse and regret like Sayyidina Yunus Salam. Ya Allah, surely we are the true sinners. It befits us that we should say, La ilaha illa anta subhanaka inni kuntu mil dhalimeen. And Ya Allah, Ya Alhamdulillah Rahimeen. You are Alhamdulillah the most merciful of the merciful ones. Ya Allah, we ask that you send your rahmah upon our hearts, that you forgive our hearts, that you forgive us even before this month of Ramadan starts, that you wipe our slate clean before Ramadan comes, so that we can spend Ramadan adorning our heart, nourishing our heart, beautifying our heart, developing in our deen. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, and Ya Allah, Rabbuna Rahman Al-Musta'an, that Ya Allah, You are our Rabb, You are our Rahman Rabb, You are the Rabb that we turn to You in each and every state, in each and every situation. Ya Allah, we turn to You having spent a year in sin again. We turn to You on 
this cusp of Ramadan. Ya Allah, we ask that you bless us in this month of Ramadan. We ask that you take us out from our weakness, take us out from our laziness, take us out from our sin and neglect, and Ya Allah, bring us onto a life of deen, a lifestyle of deen, a lifetime of deen. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, Ya Arhamar Rahimeen. And Ya Allah, we ask that each and every one of us, that you give us the ability and opportunity over and over again to say Lambayk, Allahumma Lambayk, to come to you in Ihram, to come to Makkah Makarramah, to visit Medina Manawara, to make tawaf around your bait, to beg your mercy on the plains of Arafah, to pelt the shayateen on the, in, in Mina. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you grant this, grant this to us out of your mercy. And Ya Allah, anyone who may be going for Umrah soon, Ya Allah, whether they may be going in this month of Ramadan, Ya Allah, we ask that you accept their Umrah. We ask that you accept their du'as that they make on Umrah. We ask that you make the du'as of the Mu'tamireen this Ramadan. Ya Allah, means of changing this Ummah, a means of blessing this Ummah. And Ya Rabbi Kareem, those who are going for Hajj on this year, who have yet to go or plan to go in this or the following year, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you grant them in advance. We ask, Ya Allah, that you grant a Hajjim Makbul, a Hajjim Mabrur, a Hajjim Mashkur. Ya Allah, put in our hearts an attraction towards the Kaaba, a love towards the Kaaba. Put in our heart the need to go to Kaaba, the need to visit Medina Manawara. And Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you accept our teaching and learning of Quran. Grant us a life that is Amal on Quran. Let us retain the feelings of the Quran, even if perhaps we may forget the meaning of every word. But Ya Allah, let us retain the feelings of the spirit of Quran. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we make dua for all of our dearly departed friends and beloveds. Ya Allah, there are some amongst us, Ya Rabbi Kareem, who you have tested through the loss of a family member, through the death of a young one, through the death, an early death of a son. Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you send your special karam and fuzzle. Ya Allah, we ask that you decree your maghfara for them. We ask that you raise their darajat in Jannah. We ask that you grant them the company of the Salihin. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem, we ask that you make us, their friends and family members, a sadaqa jariya for them. Make us a living testament to their memory. Grant us a life of taqwa and tahara. Ya Allah, such that when they greet us, when they see us on the day of judgment, they will greet us happily. They will acknowledge us openly such that we may be a means of succor to them. Ya Allah, Ya Rabbi Kareem. And we ask that you raise us amongst the mu'mineen salaheen in the ummah of rahmatan lil alameen. Ya Allah, we ask that you enable us to follow each and every one of his sunnahs. Live a life according to his seerah and hayat al-tayyibah. Ya Allah, we want to receive every single drop of mercy that you sent in the form of rahmatan lil alameen. Ya Rabbi Kareem, accept this dua for us. Remove all of the obstacles between us and his life and his sunnah and his adab and his akhlaq and his zahir and his batin. Ya Allah, make us a complete copy of him. Make us follow that uswatun hasana. Ya Rabbi Kareem. Ya Rahman Rahimeen. Rabbana takabba minna innaka anta samiyul adeem. Wa tubu alayna innaka anta tawabu rahim. Wa sallallahu ta'ala ala habibihi Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Bi rahmatika ya arhamar rahimeen.